Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks for joining us. We've got another great episode for you to enjoy today featuring Joe Johnson, a highly successful American radio host based in Florida. Joe's been a part of the classic music scene his entire life and is perhaps most recognized as one of the top radio personalities in Miami for nearly 30 years. Joe's conducted personal interviews with a literal who's who of the pop music industry, including iconic artists like Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Peter Noon, Peter Frampton, Frankie Valli, The Monkees, Brian Wilson, and many, many others. Joe is also a national voiceover artist, a comedian, and is creator of the nationally syndicated Beatle Brunch radio show, where he's heard on nearly 100 radio stations across the country. And today, Joe joins us from his home in Florida for a look back at the successes in his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's been working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. So where's where's your office? Is this in your home? This is uh yeah one of the bedrooms in my home. You're seeing the all the CDs and records, but facing the other way is um a studio console and Pro Tools and a mixer and everything. But I just ordered a new, the brand new Pro Tools and I ordered a digital mixer, but it's so complicated because everything goes to a send and then you have to send it to the stereo pair and it it's so confusing. So I haven't switched it out yet. And, uh, and I've been practicing on the new Pro Tools. It's not that different than the current one, but or the one that I have. But yeah, I'm on I'm on twelve. Well, this would be like twenty one or something like that. I was on Pro Tools twenty one. Uh, well, they're calling it twenty 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 one for the year. I don't know how many uh, versions that would translate to be, but it's the it's like oh. the newest one. Oh, because only... yeah, I, I just got mine last year, and it's Pro okay, Tools then... twelve. I didn't I didn't upgrade though. I just left it where it was because when you upgrade Pro Tools, you have to upgrade everything. Yeah, no, what I did is I just, this one I've had over here for about 16 years, because I only do a couple of stereo and mono tracks and some plugins. I don't do, I'm not making records over here. So um, I, it's always served me well, and it has a great um, surf control surface that I love. But this new mixer, you can actually assign, and I actually got lucky, and I don't want to move them. I actually assigned Pro Tools to the mixer uh, faders, because I want to use it as a, a studio mixer, but... Um, they say you can take it like to churches and do the, all these different things. That's, that's not what I want to do. But anyway, so yeah, this is just a bedroom in the house. We have a, a four bedroom house and this one I took over like 20 years ago and just <laughs> kind of started doing my thing in here. And then we have a workout room and, and a guest room and, and uh, our, our bedroom. So that's it. So you do your show out of your home. Yeah. Well, Beetle Brunch is, yeah. And it's pre-recorded because it's all mixed and you know, it's, I put stuff in it and interviews and things and edit and stuff like that. It has to be exactly uh, 48 minutes every, you know, that then they add the commercials and they leave six minutes for the, the radio stations to play it. So um, put their stuff in. So yeah, I do that here. I do voiceovers. I do imaging production, you know, for um, com companies, I'll do voiceovers and produce a spot. I have uh, sound effects and music and, uh, and that kind of thing. I'm not a musician like you, or I would uh, play, play my own stuff. Do you have a studio at home? Yeah, we're sort of sitting in it right now. I'm basically, um, if if you were to see to my left here, I got a kit of drums, drums mic'd up uh -huh. over here, and right over here is an entire wall of guitars. Wow, and, of course, uh, yeah. And uh, I, this, if there's a drawer right here, and if I pull it out, there's a keyboard in it. Okay, sure, yeah, like yeah. A, and a, 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 mu a music keyboard, I mean. Oh, a music keyboard, gotcha. Yeah, yeah I've, and I've then a um, mouse keyboard. Yeah, and then my rack is to my right here. But uh, yeah, so I'm sort of. 
this is this is where my my studio, which is basically uh, my garage. You know, I just got to I got to put into my garage, and it works fine. It does the job for me. Uh, the last home I had, I had uh, actual. I had a garage again, but I had put up walls and ISO rooms and all that stuff. And right, I just right. realized it was just a big waste of time. Yeah. Um, well, I especially this, nowadays. I normally use this RE20 and uh, I mean, they could be mowing the grass right outside my, I don't have any soundproofing and, and usually you can't hear it if I work it really tight. Plus I'm pre-recorded. So I just wait for the ice cream man to, you know, leave the block. <laughs> yeah, I've been pretty lucky. And, and I use a, uh, an SM7, which is a pretty near field microphone. I use that most of the time for vocals and things like that. So, you know, you, you never sing back from those microphones. You're usually right on top of them. And uh-huh. so you don't get a lot of leakage. And if you do, it's, I remember doing this one album. Um, I had, or actually it was a song for an album and I, a guy had given me his space and it was a rehearsal hall with all these rock bands that we rehearse. And he gave me this upstairs room and to convert into a studio. And he says, look, you can have the space for free. I just hope yeah. that maybe we can offer service to people who are rehearsing, you know, that they can re- record with you as well. I went, okay, great. So I set up in there and got the ISO room done and everything else. I was working up there for weeks and I finally got some vocals. I had to do some vocals on this project. And it was these, and I had um, these girls come in and they're singing a very nice light, like ah, 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 sort of stuff in the backgrounds, you know, really light uh, operatic, almost, you know, uh-huh. sweet sounding vocals. And right below is this heavy metal band. <laughs> 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 and there was no isolation whatsoever. So, but I was still able to use it. All I did was I did a roll off at about hmm, probably around 200. I did a roll off on the bottom end because it was just the bottom end that was leaking through all the bass okay. drum and the bass guitar. And I was still able to use the vocals. But if I isolate that song, I can still hear all the noise in those vocals, but you don't hear it on the track. Wow. Let me take my um, phone out. My phone is running through the computer. So let me, let me, um, Actually, I'm just going to turn it off again. Actually, I just saw who it, it looks like it was um, Jason from the cruise. He's like the cruise host when you oh, were on the cruise. I, I don't yeah. know if I've met him. Oh, okay. He does a lot of the stage intros and he does the the things, uh, the all access pass, you know. Where, oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. On the TV and stuff. Yeah. No, he's great. Him and I host a lot of these together. So uh, you rolled off the bottom, which, w- and so you ended, ended up using the, the what you recorded. Oh, I can still use it. Yeah. It's just, a, and if I isolate those tracks now and I take the bottom, like, take that that bypass off you can hear all that noise in the background but you don't hear it on the song at all and this song is all acoustic i'm playing upright bass on it it, it, Mm -hmm. you don't hear any of this stuff but underneath underneath those background vocals is this heavy metal band going crazy (laughs) wow that's pretty cool that's pretty cool how long have you been doing beetle brush how many years has it been now it's going to be 30 years in about two weeks it started may 31st 1992 it's yeah because I heard about you years ago. I, when I was on the road, I would be, a, a lot of times you'd be playing somewhere and you're driving back home on the Sunday morning, especially on Vancouver Island. I would be driving back to catch the ferry to the mainland. Okay. And Beetlebrush would always come on right at that time on that particular station that you were done. And it was always the most fascinating show. You always had the best tidbits of stuff and way before internet. You know, now you oh, can yeah. sort of find these yeah. little tidbits here and there. Yeah, no, you it know? was hard. It was hard. Um, and it had to be C six fifty C aisle. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I used to be on that station. Yeah, for a long yeah. time. With the who's the legendary guy that was Red in Robinson? Town? Red Robinson. He's still yeah. with us. Yeah, well, yes, he is. As a matter of fact, Red is scheduled to be on my show. He's, he's a good friend of mine, actually. Nice. Um, uh, he's a really, really good friend of my of my partner uh, in my musical partner. They're very close. Um, but he's, you know, he, he, we lost his wife a couple of years ago on my birthday. Sadly, she died of cancer. Oh no! Uh, 
which is surprising. I mean, she she always looked so young and and vivacious and stuff. I was surprised that she she died at all uh, or had was even sick. Uh, but he's he's been putting together a um, sort of a bit of a retrospective podcast himself, apparently, where he's just he'll talk about you know he'll talk about Roy Orbison and all of his dealings he had with Roy Orbison and then Buddy wow. Holly and the, all this stuff and just sort of do them at where each show is like twenty minutes. And, That's uh, That's you know, great. just doing a, just basically, um, you know, a legacy stuff, you know, which is great. Sure. Yeah. I think I every, mean, really, really uh, red is one of the original DJs. Like, yeah, I was going to, I was going to say every, every city that the Beatles came to, they always have like, you know, you have Scott Muni or, you know, cousin Brucey in Miami. We had a guy named Rick Shaw who was here on the air for 50 years. I got to be dear friends with him and red Robinson. I've actually, Somewhere I have CDs of his interviews and I've back in the probably it's been a while, but I've played them on on Beetle Brunch. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. There was no Internet. Um, When I first started, I would record the show to a DAT, um, but they were seventeen dollars each to buy a DAT, you know. Right. So uh, I would buy like one and then I would dub it down to reel to reels that the radio station just let me use their stock and I would mail out the reel to reels only had like four stations. So uh, throughout the country. Yeah, the the station I worked for uh, in Miami, which I worked for for 30 years doing all the imaging and commercials and voiceovers and an air shift and everything. I think I sent you that clip yes. of the, the, the guy, uh, be, um, the big bopper and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I did that show for like 15 years, but um, and I would do Beetle Brunch and I had to do it at the station. I didn't have reel to reels and things here. And um, yeah, it was it was a lot of work and it was more of I wrote this script and I stuck to it. And then I, I you remember carts, they look like eight tracks. I would yep. put, on, put the interviews on carts. And as I was talking, I would hit it was like I was doing a live radio show. So it was hard because if I messed up or somebody came in the room or something and, and the noise happened, I usually had to start that whole segment over unless I wanted to edit at the end of it and this was still in your house at the time no no this was at the radio station Uh, yeah i i was the um creative services production director so i ran the studio side and i was on the air so i could do whatever i want in the studios and they had nice equipment we had an analog big analog eight track with like i think it was like two inch tape so i got to be really good at punching in and out of that and you know doing all that analog production you know on these reel-to-reels and spinning things and cutting tape and all that and that's how it was. Even on the sh- the request show I had on Saturday night, it was all, you know, I had two tape decks and one I would have something ready to go. Then I would record on the other one. And usually I had to edit for whatever reason, either cut out a story the guy was telling or they made a mistake or they asked for the, a song I couldn't play. You know, they would ask for Stairway to Heaven or something. So I'd have to edit that out or go, hey, what did you want? Hey, what? and I'd start the call over, you know, and hey, what do you right. want to hear? So, yeah, so I used their studio, and, and then it wasn't until I moved to this house in 1998 that a maybe a year or so later, I built this studio. It's just a, I ordered a rack size um, console for equipment because I was thinking I'm going to do a live show from here. So I had, I have three CD players, I have a, a DVD, a CD recorder, and a DAT player, which never worked. I have a mini disc, I have a cassette, I have processing, I have a, a double CD dubber. You know, I had stuff that was, more analog friendly, but now everything is completely online. You know, it's, yeah. you're right. It's so if I wanted to say what cars did the Beatles drive, I could type it in and I could have the answer for you. Yeah. You know, in, in like a minute. Yeah. Back then it was like, I remember listening to your show going, where does he get this stuff? <laughs> you know, cause it was way before the anthologies and all that stuff where, yeah, where that I, stuff was just, you couldn't find it anywhere. 
Yeah, it's weird. I'm going to have to think back to that because um, it, 1992, the anthology didn't come out till 94. And uh, in fact, in my studio wall is a picture of me sitting at Abbey Road Studios on the steps. And we took a picture, somebody took a picture of me. And at the same time we were there, um, there was a Rolls Royce parked in front of <coughs> the Abbey Road steps. Have you ever been to Abbey Road Studio? Yes. It's, it's pretty amazing to be there. <coughs> Sorry, I have to cough here. Anyway, there was this Rolls Royce in front of it, and we were all looking in thinking, oh, George Martin must be here. And on the back seat, there were these brochures that said the Beatles anthology, like, a, like folders and things. And I took a picture of it, which I have still back when, you know, the cameras weren't digital. You had to get the film developed. So you're walking around going, I got four pictures left. What do I really want to take, you know, back yeah, yeah. in the day? Remember, you had to, like, manage your photos. I only have three yeah. left. Take another picture of me. No, no, I got you already. So I took a picture of that because it was really cool. I didn't know if it was his car or not. And then when I got the film developed, there was a reflection on the window of a guy standing next to me wearing a John Lennon shirt. And John's got this pose like this. So he looks like a ghost. Oh, wow. And then, and then in the back seat is the Beatles anthology stuff. Wow. So, and I didn't know that was going to happen until I got home, but that Rolls Royce, we all went out and we're signing the wall and not paying attention. All of a sudden it pulls out and George Martin is driving and he was with some other guy, like a producer. Um, I posted the picture one time and this guy in London goes, oh, that's such and such. He was the editor or whatever. So, yeah, that's what, exactly what they were doing. In fact, we went into the studio. Hey, is George Martin here? And of course they said, no, you know, no, he's not here. You know, he's not here. He's got his own studio. So um, I, I, I took these tape box covers. They had, you know, if you send out five inch real tapes, they have a little cover. You could write what spots are on there or whatever. I took a few home. And then when I got, um, I forget where I was, I, I ended up mailing them to his secretary who I met and he signed them for me. So I have them on a frame thing. And uh, let's see, it's the picture of the Beatles anthology where they're standing on the steps. And then above it is a picture of me on the taking the exact same pose sitting on the steps. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then there's a picture of George Martin driving the, the Rolls Royce out. I'm looking at it right now. So, and then it's his signature on the tape box. It's just a weird thing I had framed when I got home. But, you know, um, when I, I interviewed him, when they did the Love Cirque du Soleil, when that started out and it was him and Giles, I think I was more nervous interviewing George Martin because I'm a production person and, and I've listened to all his stuff in headphones and I can tell you where all the mistakes are and where the edits are and, yeah. you know, on, on the songs. And um, so, yeah, and, I interviewed him and Giles um, right at the beginning of the Love Cirque du Soleil show in Vegas. So it was 2006. And um, we, he was sweet. We talked for like 10 minutes. I posted the interview on my Facebook page or website. And um, I saw him at this after party that night. And it was in the little room they had at the Mirage. And he came up to me and he goes, how did you like the show? What did you think of the show? <laughs> I said, oh, I thought it was beautiful. He goes, oh, I was worried. And I'm thinking, gosh, I hardly believe he was worried, but it was so sweet of him, you know. He was. He almost, nice... he almost struck me as such a nice gentleman. You know? Yeah, that's how I felt. I felt that he was he was just really genuine and and listening to what I was saying and giving honest answers, and you know, being one of these people probably like you that listens to everything and hearing hears edits and everything. There's a um, a when Paul does if I fell and he sings the word in vain. Yeah, the crack. Time, the second time he sings it, the stereo version, his voice cracks. 
And I know what they did when they made the mono, they just flew in the the other take of him saying vain, because you can kind of hear it over the other one, over the stereo one. So in mono, his voice doesn't crack, but on the stereo, they didn't, they didn't spend a lot. Really? Of time. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they I, didn't, I didn't spend... know that one. So I said to George Martin, I figured, well, he'll definitely know about that. I said, you know, when you were recording, if I fell from Paul with Paul McCartney and the second time he sings the line in vain, his voice cracks. And then you guys covered it up with a. He goes, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I, I don't remember that at all. So, you know, they were just cutting these songs and getting out of there. You know, one of my oh, favorite of books, my favorite books is this Mark Lewis and studio sessions, this white book. You probably have it. Yeah. You can go to any date in Beatle history. That's probably where I got a lot of information. Like if I went to, if I fell, oh, it was recorded, you know, March 3rd, you know, whatever date, you know, for a hard day's night and, and um, pick out some information. Maybe they would tell you where the edit is, or, you know, they did 14 takes of the song that day. So, I, I mean, that's one of the books that if I had to run out of my studio and only grab like one or two books, that would, that would definitely be the one, even though I can order it on Amazon. <laughs> that book and uh probably the jeff emmerich book too because he was, yeah i love the jeff emmerich book yeah he was there he, he seemed a little hard on george for my liking though yeah yeah he was and and i did an interview with him I, you've probably never been to abbey road on the river it's uh right over the ohio river in um uh jeffersonville indiana and it's, it's right near st louis and uh he was the guest there and i got to do like two days of interviews with him and for like these were like inner these were like jeff nuts you know so the interview was like two and a half hours you know and right. we had only gotten up to like rain you know we still hadn't wow. really done, done the white album or anything so um he was great and we were talking about the love cirque du soleil and we were talking about the the mix the mashups and the mix-ups and the remixing and the going back and putting out different versions of the anthology and and, and that kind of thing and he said to me, uh, I said, what did you think? You must have been freaked out when these came out. He goes, I refuse to listen to them. I said, what? He goes, nope. I, I listened to the mono Sgt. Pepper or the mono mix of the album that we did. And that's, to me, that's the final version. I don't want to hear other. John, John Lennon said the same thing about Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. He said, yeah, he said, he said, he said, if you want to hear Sgt. Pepper the way it was meant to be, you listen to the mono version. The stereo version doesn't give it. Because it's true. There's, there's segues that are wrong. Even right. That's that's yeah. And they also yeah, there's I'll tell you what's the song. Oh, the, the mono, and this is weird that it's on the mono version. The mono version of um, Oh, Blood, Dio, Blood, Da doesn't have the hand claps. Oh, uh, yeah, it's really it's interesting until you know that I it might have been an overdub thing and maybe they were just too lazy to do it. And they put the song out and then maybe they realized it at that time because they the stereo one has the hand claps in stereo. So I don't know why they did that. I always remember because my, my brother, I think he actually borrowed it at the time. He, I had the, the mono version of Sgt. Pepper when it first came out. And I was a little kid. I remember crying because the Beatles changed their name. <laughs> I, I was like, why did they change their name to Sgt. Pepper? That's a silly name. You know, I didn't understand that was the name of the album at the time. But I did love that album. I played it incessantly. But there was that segue between Good, good Morning, Good Morning into the reprise where it goes, you know, Bernard. That little, it, like, it's got the, the, it's the chicken going, buck, 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 and the guitar right. answers it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but brilliant. Just, well, it doesn't do that. It misses a beat, and it drove me crazy. On the mono, so your mono album, but I, I haven't, I, I don't even know if I have the mono album. I definitely have the mono CD because it came in the box set. Well, it's they, the I'm, same sure thing, they, yeah. I'm sure they fixed it though by then. That was the thing that we, um, no, no, no. I'm saying the, the mono one was the right way. 
It was well, a stereo. Oh, it was a stereo that has space. It, it missed a beat. So this the mono one, it's like the, the chicken went right into the guitar lick. It went yep, and yep, it answers yep. it. And on the on the on the on the uh stereo one, it misses a beat, so it just sounds awkward. It just sounds like an awkward that is, moment. That's me. I wonder if that's the because uh, the album that I have in my catalog, not the one that I bought recently, but the one that I have from like being a kid, probably has the same thing. I, I don't even have a turntable hooked up anymore, but I should probably go play it and see if it does it on this one. It's a stereo, and it's probably forty years old, or I probably bought it in late early eighties or something. Yeah, I remember, the, and I remember the segue between Sergeant Pepper and Little Help was different too. That seemed like it was more like a blend because the the crowd comes up and stuff. But yeah. the the stuff that I always looked for, they said that that crowd that comes up, that's from the Holly Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, they just kind of faded that end of the crowd, you know. But because uh, well, the rest of the crowd was from the Goonies, wasn't it? Oh, where where the there is something. Like the, was, the opening, like the, the, the people chuckling at the end of oh, uh, the video without you. I think that was right. from the Goonies. Cause, uh, I think, I think you're right. Yeah. There's a, well, it goes, bump, 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 Yeah. Yeah. I think he took some of that. I think George Martin, that was one of the things that got me to do the show. I watched the making of Sergeant Pepper it came out in 1992 and it was on the Disney channel for some reason. Um, nowadays it would be somewhere on uh, Netflix or Apple plus, I guess, or whatever. But um, that was that to me. And then they put it out on the, on the Sgt. Pepper box set uh, in 2017. That was to me was the earliest version of the anthology because he was in the hallway. Uh, I mean, he was in the uh, Abbey road studios, George Martin. And he would, that was the first time he potted up just the vocal and yeah. you could hear Ringo singing here. I was like blown away. It was like, that was a, a life changing moment for me with Beatles and seeing him, George Martin, I'm pointing to him because he's looking at me. Um, seeing him do that was, was crazy. And I had been there. Remember I, I was, that's what they were working on. Like maybe they were working on when I saw him, the, the making of Sergeant Pepper, but it did have the anthology papers on the backseat. I'll send you a copy. Well, I'm phone. sure it would have taken a long time for that to put together. So it's and, quite possible. And I remember going over there a year or two before <clears throat> and uh, I called up or I, there was no internet, you know, like you mentioned. So I got the number and I called and I said, I'm a broadcaster in <clears throat> America, I do a Beatles show. Can I come over and get a tour of Abbey Road? And they, they gave me a tour. And I remember trying to go down the hallway and those old, I didn't realize what they were. Those old four track tape machines were in the hallway and you had to like turn sideways to get by. Wow. And they were like, oh, those are the old tapes that tape decks uh, from, the, I think George Martin was using them or something. It's so weird that I didn't realize it. Or That's I, what they were doing. They were transferring those old tapes. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I wish I would have known more to take a picture, but you know, I mean, again, I didn't have a digital camera or phone or anything. I mean, I maybe I didn't even bring my, I must've brought my camera. I think I took pictures outside. And uh, I have uh, the stems to a lot of Beatles songs that I've been well, collecting over the years. Was that from the rock band CDs? The D I, I don't know where they came from. I'm assuming they might've, Yeah. but it's interesting. Do you know who Jim Valance is? Uh, the name is familiar. Jim yeah. Valance. He's, he's like, Make a songwriter. He he rose to fame basically as Brian Adams' songwriting partner, but now he's co-written with like he's done songs with Aerosmith and Ozzy Osbourne and like right. you name it. I mean his 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 oh. pedigree is amazing. Anyway, we're, we're old friends, and he's um, a Beatle freak like you and I. 
you know, crazy. Like we, we constantly exchange stuff back and forth. Like he sent me, he says, have you heard this? It's George playing saxophone on all you need is love. And he sends it to me and you can hear George on this saxophone going, you know, oh, that's awesome. Sax part. But it's actually <laughs> in the mix, but he, he was able to get it isolated. Wow. I love that. I have to, I, I don't know if it's a hassle for you, but it, all the, if the stations that the cities that don't air Beetle Brunch, I have, a, I have the Beetle Brunch club and members can go in and listen to the shows commercial free. In fact, um, there's more content on the show that, than, than there is on the air because I'm limited to 48 minutes and sometimes the track goes long and I use it for the club. So I'll definitely put make a membership for you and if it's not a hassle and if you can i can show you how to put the little app on your phone so you can play it through the car you can do whatever you want oh great well there's something else i was going to tell you though jim wrote me he wrote me about about four weeks ago i'm gonna i'm thinking four or five weeks ago and he says have you heard this because i'd say i'd shared the stems with abby road and you're hearing the piano track once there was a way to get back home where that part you're hearing the piano track and you know what you're hearing in the background no Oh, is it the t- the? There's a line? click. There's some sort of a click on there. We're going, and we're both going. Why is there a click on this? This you don't think it doesn't a, make sense. The Beatles never used a click. Right. Hmm. Why is there a click on that track? And there is. There's a click on that track. And we're, we're at, like it's way in the background, but it's it's no doubt there's a click there. I'm just trying to figure out if maybe McCartney recorded that piano separately and then with it, with a, a little metronome going with it. And then he used that and Ringo over, overdubbed his, you know, the golden slumbers drum parts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's that that's an anomaly. I wasn't aware of at all. You know, you get these little things. It's that's the thing about Beatle freaks. Michael Sicoli, a good friend of mine, he's the one I was talking about. That's really good friends with red Robinson. He's, he's always talking because we were friends in high school and we talk the same way now as we did then. <laughs> we're always finding tidbits of stuff. Hey, did you see this? Hey, you know, you know, when John's playing this chord, he's actually playing this chord. And it, 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 I was on, I was on YouTube the other day. I can't believe it. I've been playing it wrong all these years. It's this, it's an F seven or it's an F six. It's not a D minor. Or, you know, this, the weirdest little things and and they're all so important to people like us you know they are they, you know when i do these i used to do beetle fests or abbey road on the river and they're they always have like um symposiums in in a, in a uh, room and, uh, and there's people that talk about that stuff there are people that uh they do it they do a um, presentation on it and they play the example have you ever seen um scott fryman do deconstructing the beatles because he was yes the- i went to i went to one of his presentations in vancouver it's incredible, right? I mean, it's what he's, first of all, what he's allowed to do. He has to run all the stuff by these lawyers, you know, the, the length of the song that he can do. And it's because it's uh, considered educational. Right. So he's able to do it, but it's just incredible what he does. And he, um, he pulls out all these tapes and things and click track type of stuff, you know, that well, I've, never I've heard learned of. a lot that day, uh, the, the lady Madonna piano thing. And he was talking about what's the name of that song. Um, oh, uh, by Fats, Dom- Fats Domino. No, it's not Fats Domino. Bad but it's Penny Blues. English version of that kind of guy. Oh. And 
mm-hmm. McCartney says, I love the sound of that piano. He found that it was actually done at Abbey Road at th- this piano. He says, well, I want it mic'd up exactly the same. And when you hear that intro and you hear Lady Madonna, you go, it's a, it's a direct rip. It's like the, the feel, the feel. There's a band uh, you may know. They're called The Weaklings. Do you know The Weaklings? Glenn Bar- Burtonett, uh used I, to I know be the in, name. He was in Sticks. He wasn't an original, but he was in Sticks for like 15 years. And um, he plays He plays in the orchestra, which is that 70s. Uh, I don't know if they were on the cruise when you were, but they do all the electric light orchestra stuff. Glenn Burtnick. He, um, and I talked to him yesterday, actually. What was I going to say about, um, what were we talking about? The, the, we're talking about the, the Lady Madonna. The Lady Madonna. He calls me up one day or he sends me a text. He goes, Joe, I'm at Abbey Road, I'm at, um, Abbey Road Studios, and I'm right in front of the uh, piano where they did Lady Madonna. He goes, you want me to send you a, a voice memo of something? I said, yeah. Don't, don't just tell me. I want you to walk up the stairs, do a narration, and then play something on the piano. And he did. And he played Lady Madonna. And I've got it. And I played it on the show. And then I blended it into the Pro Tools, did into the song, you know? Oh, great. So, yeah, he was, he was just going to do like a little report for me. I said, no, man, play something. That's so really I, cool. Yeah. Uh, we're recording our second album. And we're thrilled to be here. An amazing thing is when you're done with your take, you go running up the stairs into the control room and you want to hear the playback of what you just did. And basically, as I walk on those stairs, I think about how many times John Paul, George and Ringo did the very same thing. This is supposedly the piano that this song was recorded on. So I don't know if he would have gotten in trouble. I don't know if you're not supposed to play the instruments, but you know, it's still there. And he's, I wonder if that's the famous Mrs. Mills piano. I believe it must be because McCartney's talked about that piano a lot. Yeah. I got the but, feeling that's the one it's an old upright. It, it, I, yeah. I think they called, was it Mrs. Mills had a, a radio show from there or something? And I think to- so. He's, he's talked know. about her before and maybe even on the making of Sergeant Pepper, uh, McCartney talks about the Mrs. Mills thing. Um, I think so. And, and they, he, they always talk, talked about all the different people they would run into that were doing, you know, classical pieces or narrating, narrating plays and different things that were happening at Abbey Road Studios, you know. Um, we used to do this Beatle. I used to be part of this trip to London, Liverpool with Charles Rosenay. He does all these trips. He's been doing them for like 40 years. And I guess what he does, this is his workaround. I guess he books an hour at Studio Two. You know, he does it a year in advance. And it's from, you know, 1 to 2 p.m. And so he brings all the people on the tour. There's maybe 30 of us and you're in, I've got pictures. I've actually got this little DV video. I don't even know how to extract it anymore. I can send it away to this company um, of us at Abbey Road Studios walking around and uh, going up the staircase. And when you go into the control room, obviously it's all new, you know, digital updated equipment, but you can surely recognize that staircase that comes down mm-hmm. and, you know, the sound baffles and, and um I did an interview with, and you may know them with the um, zombies, Colin Blundstone. And um, I've never, I've never met them. I, oh. I'd, I'd love to talk to them. You guys would talk Beatles for hours because I did an interview with them. And even backstage before we went out at the, on the last cruise I did, they're such Beatle geeks. And uh, they were saying that they, they did their album Odyssey and Oracle, like the day after the Beatles finished Sergeant Pepper, they were booked like next. And um Rod Argent, he's the other principal songwriter. Right. He's the song. He goes, you know, we go in there and there's all these pieces of paper with lyrics on them and everything. I said, what are you crazy? I, stuff in those yeah. in my, can you imagine like today? 
but you can, buy, uh, you, can buy, you can buy a neighborhood with that. <laughs> you could. There's actually a, a story I read uh, or heard that Paul McCartney found out the guy that had the handwritten lyrics to yesterday. I guess he was telling people he had it and he must have stolen it or taken it from somewhere, or maybe he worked at Abbey road. Paul contacted him and said, uh, I got to have that. You got to, you got to give that to me. It belongs to me. You took it from me. So they worked out some kind of trade. Paul, maybe, I think Paul wrote the lyrics for him personally again, or something like that and signed it. But yeah, he McCartney wanted to have that back. I think he's one of the biggest Beatle collectors, the Bee Gees who there's only one left. They live here in South Florida they had they somebody told me that they bought some original consoles that they recorded music on but i mean that may not be the case because we were just talking about the mix uh, the four track recorders but maybe that's not the console the four track recorders being in the hallway and that kind of thing well i'd heard that um lenny kravitz owned the board from abbey road like that he recorded um a, lo a lot of his stuff was done on the old four track and the four track tape, like when he was doing back in his heyday, he was actually recording with that sort of stuff. I don't know if that was folklore or what, but right. because he was sort of known as a, a retro kind of act, you know. Right, right. Well, he uh, I mean, I think that um, there's a, probably was a lot of equipment to go around. And there was a time where people didn't care about that stuff. Oh, that's yeah. old tape. Get that out of here, you know. Well, same as the lyrics left lying around. Yeah, exactly. Was like a, millions of dollars of Sotheby's now. Yeah, and We're you know, the last, it, it's been a long time since I've been to London. But you go to the British, the London Museum, and McCartney's even talked about this on interviews since I've been there. Here's the Rosetta Stone, and then you walk over here. Here's a glass case, <clears throat> the lyrics to "In My Life," Penny Lane, "Strawberry Handwritten." The, you can tell they're the original. And again, I took pictures of them, so there's a little bit of a reflection. But I have a picture where you can see the lyrics to "In My Life," and he scratched out a whole. Um, paragraph of lyrics that i guess he was going to sing a whole uh, break of, of uh, well that sing. was that was part of the lithographs collection that lennon had uh yoko had put out years ago and i actually had a few of them i had them in living in my last house unfortunately the house that we moved into has very little wall space so i ended up giving them to a friend of ours who has she has her whole basement her and her husband is devoted to the beatles so i said right. if anybody deserves to have this in, your, in their house it's you so i've got one, it's a it's a, a piece of art, John Lennon's self-portrait right. in the center. And there's one, two, three, five of Beatles handwritten lithographs. And then the other one is his self-portrait again and five of his solo stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, But it was interesting because one of the ones was revolution. And you could see all the shun words he had at the bottom, words that ended in T. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and he wrote them all at the bottom of the paper and he was putting them up into the verses. Making them yeah. work, you know. That's awesome. It was like nobody would nobody would probably think to go just go get a, a rhyming dictionary or something. They didn't have them in those days, I'm sure. I just read it was literally like two days ago um, that a similar story. Um, you've seen the 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 Imagine film, I think that um, the guy knocks on the door and he wants yes. to. Were you writing those songs for me? And I know. Yes. And John and I just read that whole exchange. I forget where it was the other day, where he's where Lennon said. No, those words, we were just trying to rhyme. We were just looking for rhymes to the, that, this rhyme with that. And Yoko came up with that word. And they, that has nothing to do with you, you know? But you said the same thing, because in, in that text of what he was transcribing, what was transcribed, I saw it on social media, maybe. 
it was it was shun revolution and deduction and contraption and you know oh yeah there was been... a whole bunch of words he didn't use there was dissolution yeah disillusion, yeah. disillusion. there was oh a whole ton of them like just a, a lot of words he didn't use but he had them all he wrote them all out first you can tell it was done first and then writing putting them up into the verses to make them work you know so you must when you are recording with randy bachman do you, i know you know that he does that whole hard day's night opening chord right he's, he's done yeah we, we did that at the uh at uh the uh oh um, oh god I'm, I'm a bad canadian for not remembering this <laughs> you're on the, that the, you're part I, of it was, uh, the theater the, it's a cbc theater in uh in uh in toronto yeah we did that years ago i think 2010 uh, oh gosh yeah it's been around a long time yeah it's 2010 yeah so you're you're playing on that because I don't remember yes. if it's just him on the guitar. Yeah, no, it's all it's it's everybody in the band actually, uh, except for Tal. Tal's in the band now, but that was before Tal joined. Uh huh. So and and I know I mean you know I have I have by George and I know that he's a well obviously a George fan. So do you guys t talk Beatles a lot or do you work? Oh Beatles yeah. And, oh yeah. Play Randy. Beatles in your sound check and things like that. Randy Randy's Randy's a Beatle freak. Well, when Randy when Randy comes out for sound check, sometimes he. You know, if he's busy doing interviews and stuff like that, we'll handle the sound check. Usually, it. if if it's a major production where there's something that he should be there, he's there. Sure. But if it's other things where we can sort of do his guitar and his and his monitors for him, it's like it's not to a get big the deal. sound and the volume. Yeah, we we know what we want. We we've been with him long enough. We know what he needs, so we can cover for him. But anyway, getting back to your question, oh yeah, we 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 talk and play Beatles all the time. You know, all the time. <laughs> I was, I was say, of, that album was actually done in my studio. This uh, the By George album. Yeah, all all the tablet, all the tablas. I play. I played the tablas. I played the sitars on it. Um, uh, a, a lot of the guitars I used a, a, a thing that I, you may know what it is. Some people don't. A, a Nashville tuning, which is basically I have a guitar that has all the high strings of a twelve string on a six string guitar. Okay. Wow. Okay. Really different inversions on it, so it gives you little tinkles and stuff. So that's that was done. Um, the slide guitar for um oh gosh because we did a we did a slide i can't remember i can't remember the album now right now it's bad um we did a uh where we would take a slide parts from one song but put them into another song and uh but anyway no those were done in my place there was a lot of stuff that was done in my place a ton what would happen is randy at the time was still living in toronto he hadn't moved back to vancouver island yet and i was still living on the mainland and so he would send an mp3 of his of his song that was done to grid so it was in time and i would load that in and then mark and brent would come to my place and we would play what we felt the song needed underneath and and play all that stuff so mark would play on my drums we ended up redoing the drums in the studio but we mark would play my drums and we put those in just to load it up so we knew what we were doing when we went into the studio right, right. a lot of the stuff that was done like background vocals and things like that were all out of my studio and we just flew them in at the studio when we got there because they were good enough to use so that sounds great i i um there's a there's another musician you might know andy um what's his name he wrote a book called beatles gear and he's actually friends with little Steven and he wrote a book called Beatles gear. And when I was see the guy that has the Beatles gear website. Oh, sure. I'm sure he does. Yeah. Cause there's he, one that's just unbelievable. Yeah. So the book is unbelievable too, because he's got, he got Yoko gave him permission to come to the Dakota and photograph all of John's guitars. Oh, really? Ooh. And then what he did is he, um, he, he met Ringo and Ringo had all his drums in like a warehouse, but they were just a mess everywhere. And he told Ringo, he says, would it be okay if I put them back together for you? Because Ringo had no idea. And when, I think when you're Ringo, you, you know, you just throw them in a corner or whatever. So he reassembled from photographs 
his uh, Washington DC kit at Sullivan and, and reassembled them for Ringo and the Ringo must've been freaked out. And then he took pictures for his book, you know? Wow. So, um, no, this is, this is way different than what I was thinking. This guy sounds like, uh, yeah, he's, but you would like his book if, cause you were talking about, you know, you have your guitars hanging up and, and that kind of thing. And the oh. book came out in like an Oh six or something like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you and I have a different appreciation of the Beatles that's di- deeper, and you're a musician, so you're you're hearing things that I, I don't even know exist. And um, that's the fun thing about getting with Beatle nerds. You know, you, you start talking about edits and, you know, like you were talking about the click track and, mm-hmm. and all those little things, you know? Well, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've often thought this is a really weird thought, but this is how my brain operates sometimes, is that I actually feel sorry for the Beatles. Why? Because everybody I know in the music world, I can talk like this, like the way I am with you. Yeah. I can talk for hours about them, and I, they can't do that. Well, they can do it in a special way, but only amongst the two of them now. Right. But they don't have the perspective of the rest of the world on them. Sure. You know? yeah. Well, yeah, I can. Yeah. We can talk about this stuff forever, and it's in, in great joy. You know, <laughs> it, like I can talk for days about this stuff. You know, well, well, in the anthology, they disagree a lot, and I'm sure you remember where they go, Oh, yeah, we only played Shea Stadium once, yeah, one time. Well, over to you, Paul, you would know, you know, and that kind of thing. And they did play it twice because I had a ticket to 66, which I sold on eBay a couple of months ago. So, um, yeah, so they, the, they, they've always said it was the eye of the hurricane, and they said, We never got, we never, that's, I think, one of them kind of used your premise. He said, I never got, we never got to see the Beatles live. Mm-hmm. you know and uh watching it on a tape a day later or something it's not the same thing exactly but, but um yeah so they they don't remember things as much and and one of the things and i try not to talk about it too much because i wouldn't want it to get back to paul but he's for 40 years he's been saying or 50 60 years we decided we weren't going to come to america until we had a number one because all these other bands had come and failed and they had to go home with their tail between their legs and we said we're not going to america until we had a number one so we got a, a um, hold your hand went to number one in america two weeks later or three weeks later we came in and the song was number one and you know it was timing but that's totally you know because we have the books we have the uh, the studio mark lewis in the studio session book they recorded i want to hold your hand on october 17th 1963 then they went to um, Sweden and they did a tour. They came back to Sweden and maybe they mixed the record or whatever. And when Ed Sullivan saw them coming back from Sweden, and this was maybe 10 days after they did I Want to Hold Your Hand. Song wasn't even out yet. And so they they signed with Ed Sullivan. He met with Brian Epstein a couple of day, weeks later and they signed the deal in November. The song wasn't released till the end of Jan- uh, December. So a lot, a lot of great, a lot of gray area there. Yeah, good. It's point. impossible that it could have been number one or that they planned it, you know, because they had already had songs that were equally as good, you know, from the Please Please Me album. Well, and the interesting thing is that uh, famously, I think uh, Brian Epstein made a deal with Ed Sullivan where he got they got the Beatles for free, pretty much as long as they opened and closed the show. Right. Yeah. Well, they and he they always tell the story that, uh, that I actually have a recording from Ed Sullivan. They were paid ten thousand dollars to do all three Ed Sullivan shows because they taped the third one. Oh, they did. They did make money then. Well, they were paid ten thousand. Oh. And that and that they were that was an airfare for the four Beatles and Brian Epstein. So they had to add a pocket probably for the rest of the you know, if they wanted to bring Cynthia and these other people and these other uh, reporters or whoever. And then they stayed at the Deauville Hotel here in Miami, which recently got torn down, which is a sad uh, situation. And they stayed in New York. Yeah, I mean, the $10,000, I, 
I mean, how much could they have gotten? A couple hundred bucks a piece or something by the time they, you know? I was talking to Felix Cavalier. He was on the show. And I it love was Felix, interesting yeah. because there's, it's it stated that the Rascals opened up for the Beatles at Shea Stadium. And I, I went, that's weird. So I brought it up to him. He goes, no, no, no. He says, that's whoever said, whoever reported that is wrong. What it was, Sid Bernstein, who had brought the Beatles into America, was the Rascals' manager. Right. So what he had at Shea Stadium was up on the big score scoreboard was a sign that said the rascals are coming flashing on before chase the chase stadium show wow and brian epstein walked up to sid bernstein and said either that goes or the beatles aren't playing <laughs> wow so they didn't play on that tour because i i think i have a cd i'm gonna have to look i've never listened to that part of it that has it's like the whole shea raw of everything so that maybe you don't think they played couple hours before or something probably i mean he claims they didn't play at all he yeah, said they sat in the bleachers and watched the show felix would know because he he's you know he's really tight on his facts you know because yeah and and he also he, he informed me how the ed sullivan show worked i didn't realize this he said he said yeah it's it's a week-long process he said and uh you get a stage call seven o'clock monday morning and uh you know you go in and you block your place and everything everything's rehearsed and then they do the they would do the entire show on saturday in front of a live audience that wasn't taped right and then on sunday they would do the the live one that went to uh the broadcast but it's like i was i always thought it was like you know maybe they'd come in on friday you know and, but yeah, it was yeah. a week-long process but in the, but when you think about it I, i'm i'm thinking like what am i thinking of course he's got plate spinners and animal shows and all that stuff of course sure. it's gonna a week to put that together yeah exactly well they came in on the seventh and the show was on the ninth so they didn't have a lot of lead time but what they did do that i always point out or i have pointed out on the show is the third show which was um february 23rd it was also from new york it was uh i think it was six songs three and three they recorded that before they recorded that the afternoon of the Sunday Ed Sullivan show. So the 23rd is really their first Ed Sullivan show, but they saved it for two weeks because the following hey, week they went to okay, Miami. Okay, say, say that again. I didn't. Okay. Uh, so they did February 9th. They did an yeah. Ed Sullivan show from New York. February 16th, they did one from where I live in, in Miami. Miami. And then February 23rd, another show from New York. Well, they were already back home on the 20th. They taped the 23rd show on uh, uh february 9th the morning the morning so the show that you're talking about that they would have done because in miami they did an afternoon show that was not broadcast and there's bootlegs of it john's wearing they're wearing like their beach clothes and stuff like that that you may have seen them different clothes than they wore at night they did like a rehearsal full run through um saturday uh, sunday afternoon in miami so instead of i guess maybe in the new york one they went ahead and did the show for the 23rd wow that's interesting. Another thing that Felix said too, he said is Ed Sullivan was very good with his pay structure. He hmm. said the musicians got paid full. Like you would get paid as if it was a full concert for one song. Wow, that's fantastic. He said he, he said he, because he, he had a huge budget given to him from CBS and stuff, and he he wanted to make sure that everybody was paid properly for their for their craft, which he, he said he was a really good guy that way. Was the Ed Sullivan show available to you in Canada? Oh yeah. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't broadcast in Canada. How it was is <laughs> back in the days. I, I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Across from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. So we had CBC television in Sault right. Ste. Marie. Rabbit ears on the TV. You know? Right, right, right. And and if you put tinfoil on the rabbit ears and pointed them just yeah. the right way, get Detroit. You, you could get Channel Ten 
in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, which had CBS. And we could watch the Ed Sullivan show and Bonanza wow. and the Wonderful World of Disney. Wow. Or actually, it was Wonderful World of Disney, Ed Sullivan, and Bonanza in that row. That's, that, yeah. that's the way it worked on CBS that night. Yeah, just, I remember. I remember Sunday night was Bonanza. My my parents watched that. I was six when they were on Ed Sullivan, so I, I I have a memory of it, but more like you know, my parents said you know felt like they had to watch it, so it was on you know, and and but I don't remember like you know I'm gonna go get a guitar the next day like a a lot of guys do you know like uh, yeah I was I was I was your age I was your age at the same time so I remember when 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 the Beatles came on, I remember my parents not liking them, but my brothers and sisters liking them because they're older. <laughs> and of way. course I, I sided with my parents, but by the time the Miami show happened, I was sold. And from then on in, I was a total Beatle freak right from that age. I just, right from that age, I was just engrossed in anything Beatles. What were you? Well, you were too young then to really have other musical interests. Did you, well, you played, you played guitar and, and you started learning instruments by a young, as a young kid. So what else were you listening to? Because before the Beatles, it was like Bobby V and, you know, Leslie I didn't Moore. listen to anything. I do remember uh, my, bro- I remember my brother bringing home itsy bitsy teeny winny yellow polka dot Brian bikini. <laughs> and that was way before that. Yeah, that was, uh, that that was, was the- 63. That song. Was it? Okay. Yeah, so that, that was, so that Brian would have been Highland. a year before. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually the perfect guy to ask this stuff. You, you, you would have a walking knowledge of all that. Um, yeah. My brother, my brother Dennis bought that single and I remember playing that. So I'm, we must've played that just before we moved into our new house. Okay. Got it. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorting out things. I'm sorting out things in my head. And so, uh, and the Beatles was February 9th, 1964. So we just moved into our new house. Wow. Incredible. No, wait a minute. Hold on. There's something wrong with that. So he was 63 with that, right? Yeah. I mean, I've, I can look it up, but I'm, I've played it on the radio a million times. Yeah. It's, um, but it's not like 62. Let me hang on. Let me just get the Joel Whitburn book. Just, yeah, just, right. uh, this, just for my own self-interest. Brian Highland, itsy bitsy. Oh well, God, you got me beat. It was 1960. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, see, look at that. I'm not the one to ask about that. Okay, so that's because <laughs> I, I, I know it was way before the Beatles because I was, I was a toddler, but I remember hearing it. I remember, I remember singing along with that song. And I think, when I was a little guy, I was probably got. I would have been like four, well, three or four. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think that I always remember the first song I remember hearing on the radio that was pop music was um, Take Good Care of My Baby, Bobby V. So I that was like 62, maybe. So yeah. I was like maybe four or something. I just remember it being a kid not in school yet and being home with my mom and she's cooking or whatever and just hearing that on the radio. And then I remember All My Lovin', even though it wasn't a single, I remember hearing that on the radio. But I didn't know anything about it. You know, it was, I was just a, it was, that was 63. I don't think they played it on the radio in, in, in America till 64. Yeah, they, they probably wouldn't have. Uh, they yeah. opened with it on the Ed Sullivan show. No, and, and really smart that they did. Um, um, there were bells on the hill. Till There Was You, yeah. Till There Was You, the second song. What a great way to get the parents on their side. Yep. holy crap like, who awesome. are these long-haired freaks and all of a sudden they break into you know there the sound of music and paul's looking you know, he's doing this the, ooh, yeah. you know? i know it was it was brilliant because but they were doing that song they, they had been doing that if you go to the bbc material and you see some of the stuff they did in 62 for television over there they were doing till there was you well, that's what they, they wanted to be those type of songwriters. They were hoping to right. be like a Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know? Yeah. Well, they had, you know, uh, mainly Paul, you know, had those um, like when I'm 64 and uh, 
the stuff from the white album martha my dear and those old uh, ragtime sounding tunes well I'll, I'll follow the sun he wrote at a very young age too that was one of his first they i have a star club uh cd so that was 1960 and you can hear them doing um i'll follow the sun on that get out of here really yeah it's one of the wow. old star clubs yeah so it, i mean the quality is horrible somebody was like sitting at a table way in the back but you can clearly pick out do the banter you know and that kind of thing it's it's kind of neat john lennon with the toilet seat around his head i don't i think it was it might have been that time period but brian epstein made them get rid of all that stuff you know that was <laughs> i don't know how yeah. that would have played over here but yeah uh, no kidding I think, but they and you know i want to run this by you because you probably know the song and it was a it was a number one hit uh i think april or may of 64 lauren green speaking of bonanza Ringo uh, had a song called Ringo. Yeah. Now, number one or not was based on sale position, yeah. not radio play necessarily. So you're a you're a 15 year old kid, a 12 year old kid. You're looking for a Beatle album, Beatle songs and the thing. And you come across one called Ringo. You, by law, you have to buy it. Yeah. You know, if you're a Beatle fan, you don't know yeah. what's on there. There's no way to play it. I mean, I think you could do that in um Brian Epstein's record shop, but you know, I don't think in here they, they, cer they certainly capitalized on that because yeah. the song had nothing to do with Ringo Starr. No, it's an old, an old gunslinger named Ring Ringo. <laughs> Sometimes I play a loop of that in the show just to uh, to point out that you know That's that, that funny. was out at the same time. He lay face down on the desert sand, clutching a six gun in his hand. Shot from behind, I thought he was dead, for under his heart was an ounce of lead. But a spark still burned, so I used my knife, and late that night, I saved the life of Ringo. Ringo, Ringo. I nursed him till the day. Yeah, no, I, but yeah, that, it's amazing that that whole Beatle thing has just infected so many of us over these years. And, and, and it's weird because I can divide myself from the Beatles Mem the members of the Beatles and the Beatles era and the members of the Beatles post Beatles. Sure. Like I sort of think of Paul as a different guy now somehow. Right. Like yeah. I don't know what it is, some sort of psychological thing. It, I mean, I would still be absolutely in awe of him, you know, like, like what do I say to a guy like that? I, mean, I was in, I was in proximity to him once. You, you've actually interviewed him. I, I've interviewed him on the phone a few times, but then um, I got to go to Tampa to interview him and I almost, it almost didn't happen. I almost blew it, but uh, he, it was like 22 minutes or something. I've got it posted online and yeah, he was uh, really sweet. He came in and he said my name and he said, Oh, you do a show called, they obviously briefed him, you know, you do a show called Beetle Brunch and that kind of thing. And he was great. And the, the, his publicist had told me right before, don't talk about the Beatles. Don't talk about Linda. Don't talk about Heather. Don't talk about his kids. Um, only talk about the tour and the new album, which was Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. It was 2005, I think. And so, but it doesn't matter with Paul because I, I had just seen him in Miami. And one of the first questions I had for him or comment, I said, I just saw you in uh, Miami at the Miami Arena and you did your show. It was two and a half hours. And, you know, how do you sing that long? Well, you know, in the Beatle days, you know, we didn't like you. We'd only do 27 minutes. So, 
you could you don't have to talk about the Beatles. He'll be happy to talk about the Beatles. And he even told me that story about uh, the movement you need is on your shoulder. That he was that was like a filler line. <clears throat> when he ran it by John, he said, "I'll be changing that." And John says, "You won't, you know. That's the best line in the song. I know what it means." Yeah. So he kept, but he told, and I had heard the story a bunch of times, but he's telling me the story. I'm going. Here's the guy that wrote "Hey Jude," telling me how he wrote "Hey Jude." I mean, how where how surreal is this? Yeah, that's well. It's just it's so cool. I, I was um, back in t- 2005. Uh, he was on tour, and we had a, we had a gig at with my band, not not with Randy, but my band that backs up Randy now. Um, but we, we we had a gig to uh, open up the there was a hockey strike, so a friend of ours was the vice president of the Maple Leafs in Toronto, and he hired us to do two shows outside because they're having a big celebration that hockey is back. And he hired us. And part of the contract was we got to go see Paul. Well, then I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually a professor and he, a professor of psychology at SFU at the time. And he said, Oh, my pipe and I'm actually playing at Paul's show. He says, I've been asked to play drums at that. I said, what? He says, yeah. He says, well, the only time he does Mullock and Tire is in, is in Canada because Canada has a great pop and, uh, pipe and drum corps and it went number one here. Okay. So I've been asked to play. So anyway, it turns out, he said, which hotel are you staying at? I'll, I'll make sure I check into the same hotel. So he checks into my hotel. So the day of the show, I said, well, let me go down there and I'll just hang out with you outside before you go in. Yeah. So I go down and I find out that the drummers think I'm a piper and the pipers think I'm a drummer. They don't know each other. They're all under their I thought they knew each other. They were all under contract. They didn't know each other at all. They were wow. just reading the music. So all of a sudden this guy comes, okay, in you go. And now all of a sudden I'm in and I'm in Paul McCartney's sound check and I'm not supposed to be there at all. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. So and, and and it's crazy. There was bombs, sniffing dogs, all that stuff. And I mean that was shortly after after 9-11, you know. Right. So it was crazy. So all of a sudden I'm up on the top and I'm looking down and there's Paul McCartney's stage and 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 then now, now they they have to go down to rehearse with Paul. I'm going, what the hell am I going to do? So now it, it ends up looking, they thought that I was the manager of the pipe and drum corps somehow. <laughs> so now they're coming up and they start asking me questions about stuff. And luckily I knew the answers. At th- that particular tour, I think it was Lexus was underwriting the tour. I remember the Lexus tour. Yeah, they had a car parked and out I front. I read about it in Rolling yeah. Stone magazine. It was just a thing I happened to read. So here I am. At, I'm sitting and I'm, I'm recording my friend playing, rehearsing Mull of Kintyre with Paul. And I'm thinking, you know, like totally illegal. You know, they didn't want me to do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Somebody, and somebody walks up to me and says, uh, excuse me, these people over by the soundboard, are they supposed to be here? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, you don't have to worry about them. They're, they're, they're with oh, that's cool. <laughs> and, 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 she, and she goes, oh, thank God. Right. And I'm, I, she walks away and I'm going, holy crap, I'm the only person that's not supposed to be here. And they're asking me advice. So then, I'll, then about, I don't know, 20 minutes later, she walks back, taps me on the shoulder. Now I'm getting cocky. I turn around and I go, yes. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me, I'm working here. And I, meanwhile, <laughs> I got to realize I've got a camera on my lap and I'm recording my friend rehearsing Mel of Kintyre with Paul. And, and she says, are cameras allowed at the show tonight? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> oh thank god you're here and she walks away <laughs> like these people thought that i was part of the show somehow and wow. I, I just happened to be there but I, I wasn't supposed to be there at all anyway so i i i did get to go backstage uh as paul entered he was with heather at the time 
Right. And he enters, and I happen to be at the very front of the lineup of people. And he looked at me, he goes, hey, lay low, mate, lay low, right? Like just typical McCartney making everybody feel at ease type of thing. And it was like, a, and he was looking right at me. I went, I didn't know, you know I didn't say nothing. I just <laughs> feel like a little kid again, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was, it, was, it was cool. But you got to interview the man, which is cool. I, um, we, the funny thing is, I, I was the radio station I worked at is in Miami, at the time, and um, he was rehearsing at the AAA where the Miami Heat play. It's called something else now. And it was like 10 miles away. And he was there for like two weeks rehearsing. And he even did a live version of Please Please Me for the Grammys from there or something. And um, I've been trying to get an interview through his publicist and through this person at the record label. And he calls me up one day, his, the, this manager or the publicist, and he goes, well, I got your interview with Paul McCartney. I said, great. He goes, um, he said, it's um, Saturday night. I said, well, he's going to be in Tampa. He says, oh, yeah, well, you'll have to go to Tampa, which is five-hour drive. I said, yeah, but he's right now he's a half hour from me. Is there any way I could do it while he's in Miami? He goes, oh, you don't want to do the interview? And I go, no, of course I want to do the interview. <laughs> he goes, well, I could do Miami, but it would be over the phone. I said, he says, no, you come to Tampa, you get to, you'll, it'll be you and Paul. So I naturally, I drove us five hours to Tampa. I didn't have a ticket for, to the show. So he, uh, I did the interview. And like you said, like I said, he said, don't do this. Don't ask that. Don't ask that. But um, what I thought was interesting is they travel with all their rooms. And so the room, because he doesn't want to sit, I'm, I'm thinking he doesn't want to sit on leather or get photographed on a leather couch or something like that. So they travel with all their old furniture and fake palm trees and everything. And also, I think it's familiarity. You know, the staff knows where to go. You know, where's the food? Where do they have the same footprint, I think, backstage if they can. So everything was... Um, the same and he, he came in and i had this i should have brought it over here there's a little mini disc recorder it's silver and uh, you pull it out and the little disc slides out you know and the, before when i stopped carrying dat players around i had the mini disc because the quality was pretty good and so um i tested it i put batteries in it i must have tried it 15 times hello test one two adam and he comes into the room and we're ready to start and it wouldn't go into record and i'm pushing this red button and it's like jammed or something and so the only person in the room was the publicist, a photographer, and the videographer. I wish I had the video of that, do, videotaping the whole thing. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? Am I going to pretend to record him? Am I going to just ask the, the video guy, can I have a copy of your sound? He's going to say no. You know. So I didn't know what to do. And Paul looks at me, he goes, oh, your tape recorder is not working, huh? Like, you know, and I'm thinking, so, so I go like this with my fist on the side of it. Like, you know, it's like one of these. And I went like that. And it came on and I said, I can't freaking believe it. Now I have an iPhone and whatever, you know, I, yeah. I would definitely have at least two versions of something to record on, but I got to record it, but God, I was so scared because I did oh. all that way. And I actually parked in the wrong thing. And then I get, get to the arena. They invited me to the sound check and I realized I didn't have my recorder, had to go back to the car that killed a half hour. So I was really a mess, man. I, it almost didn't happen. My fault, you know, it was, but he couldn't have been sweeter and kinder. And he, he, I got him to do these liners for me that we use in radio. Hi, this is Paul McCartney. And I knew, and what I did is I wrote them in the style of the new album. So I knew that if I needed to edit them, I could, you know, in five years from now, I could use just, hi, this is Paul McCartney. And uh, Joe and I are listening to Beetle Brunch, you know, stuff like that. And right now we're going to play a track from Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. And he would go on and introduce the song. So I have that, but I could also stop it after he right. does, you know. So um, that's how I, I, I do all line. I learned to do with artists, all the liners so that you don't just have to use it for that one event, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. 
Absolutely. So, but it's a lot different. Ringo is a lot more. I've interviewed him a bunch of times. He's really rushed and it's easy to get him off topic and you don't get what you need because you know, you have nine minutes, you know, cause you're in a series of interviews and they go, Oh, you're going to have 10 minutes. But by the time you get on and he's off mic and you know, you're blabbering and stuff, you, you know, you're lucky if you get eight or eight and a half minutes. So he was talking, he just wouldn't stop talking about how much he loved EPs as a kid. And I think, well, that's not really helping me for Beetle Brunch. I needed to talk about the, his song and this and the anthology. They were working on the Peter Jackson thing. It was almost ready to come out. I wanted to know if he'd seen it. So um, yeah, he's, he's a little more in his own thing, whereas Paul just kind of sits back and waits for you to ask. And then he answers and, well, Joe, uh, you know. It was, it was, both were great though. They were pretty good. Oh, yeah. Pretty yeah it's still just an honor to be there. I remember uh, hearing a story when Randy was on tour with uh, Ringo, I guess. It was oh yeah. The all-star band. Yeah. I, I, For sure. And it, it was a, his birthday. And so they, they did a remake. Like they, they sang a remake of Bingo was his name. but under Ringo. And, oh, cool. Ringo had never heard that song before. It must be an American or a North American song because he'd like never a, heard it. It's like a, a, a song you sing at camp or something yeah. like that in America, you know? Yeah. So, and he had never heard it. So he, he thought they wrote the song. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Just this whole, the whole thing about the Beatles and how you found your niche like that. Like, so where, where do you think you really became a Beatles fan? You said when you were like six, seven, eight, it was sort of nebulous. It was like yeah, it just was more stuff on the radio. I had two, I have two older sisters, so they bought some stuff. But I remember looking through their records. They had like uh, Born to be Wild and they had different stuff. They had Bobby Sherman. They were right. into um, Partridge Family. You know, they were, they, were, they were not as much into the Beatles. But um, I remember um, listening to, I have a copy of the White Album on white vinyl. So it's not the original. But I was I was with the girlfriend at the time. We were in one of the bedrooms at my parents' house, and we were playing the clues backwards. You know, number nine, yeah. turn me on, Deadman, turn me on, Deadman. And yeah. I was telling her about all these clues. This was a Saturday night, and it was the next uh, two days later that John Lennon was assassinated. It would happen to be that that particular night, like two nights earlier. We were listening to all these Paul is dead clues. It was just really weird. Yeah, I very guess surreal. At around that time, I guess I got into the Beatles, I guess around uh, late, I guess mid-70s probably. They had already broken up. I remember not really understanding, and I still don't really understand fully, the dynamic with John and Yoko. All I can appreciate that, you know, he could have had anyone he wanted, so he really wanted to have someone he wanted, not that yeah. it was gorgeous or whatever. But um, being kind of mad at him in the early 70s, because I couldn't listen to Two Virgins, and I couldn't listen to those albums, and... and uh, you know, I felt like, you know, I want to hear hits, you know, I'm motor. I was like 12, 12 years old. I mean, I want, I want to hear, you know, woman is the N word of the, of the world or whatever, you know, yeah. those songs, but you know, McCartney right out of the box, you know, basically by 72, he's doing wings and they're on tour. There's so many versions. Like you said, there's the, there's the cavern club or the pre Beatles with a toilet seat. Then you got the Beatles, uh, Ed Sullivan kind of period, uh, the pop, the two minute pop song. And then you get into Revolver and Rubber Soul. They're doing like Dylan-esque stuff, you know, where they're lifting from Dylan. And they actually sing that line from the Elvis song, um, Run For Your Life. I'd rather, I'd rather see you dead, dead little girl with... than to be with another man. Yeah, yeah, yeah that kind of thing that uh, Lennon was doing all the time. He was, oh, we lifted that. We stole that. Um, talking some... about that. Talk, sorry about to interrupt, yeah. but talk about lifts. We were talking about... Um, 
have you heard Sun King and Albatross? Albatross oh, well, I, by Fleetwood Mac? Oh, I, that, yeah, absolutely. In fact, oh, my God. In, in fact, in 69, uh, there's an interview I have with John Lennon where um, somebody stopped him, one of the guys from the BBC, and he went through every track on Abbey Road. So I've got him talking about every track. And when he talks to, about that one, he goes, uh, uh, something about Fleetwood Mac. He says it. It's like, say, I'd never heard of Fleetwood Mac in 69. And he said, you know, Fleetwood, he's something, I, he's, he mentions Fleetwood Mac. So yeah, they, I, that, they were definitely getting into the Beatles too there at that point. Oh, it's, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's Albat, Albatross was first and Sun King is a direct rip of I'm Albatross. Gonna, I'm going to have to AB him on YouTube. As soon oh, as oh, wait, wait, check it out. It's astonishing actually. It's it's like it'll make you go, wow. <laughs> yeah, like it's much more of a rip than uh, My Sweet Lord was. Or, yeah, so close to at least as much of a rip. Let's I'm gonna it. I'm gonna track that down. I might have that album somewhere because I have I'm a Fleetwood Mac fan too, but because I played all those on the radio too. So um, I'll, I'm gonna check that out. What was it? there's another song that um, they do that's oh it's a different artist. I, I've always told people. And nobody ever agrees with me. Maybe you'll do it because you're a musician. Um, I fought the law, but the law and the law won. Bobby Fuller four. I fought the law and the law won. Um, John Cougar Mellencamp does the authority song. I fought authority. Authority always wins. Yeah. I mean, they're they're different. Yeah. But you, it's got to be influenced by that. Song. Absolutely. It has no two to. ways about it. No two ways about it. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, oh, I can't say law. What can I say? Authority. Yeah, that's what I'll say, yeah. you know, which, which is a weird word went to authority. It's like three syllables or four syllables. And even the, 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 the title is called the authority song. Yeah. <laughs> Odd title, but it was a big hit. It was a big hit. Yeah. So but, there are, there are similarities in, in other groups too. And, uh, and I've often, often heard interviews with the Beatles where they say, so we stole from the best of them, you know? So, uh, and there was something that John, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday um, when we were talking about Sexy Sadie. I said, well, John was singing Maharishi and George says, you can't do that. You're going to, you know, you're going to hurt his feelings. We might get sued, you know, so he changed Maharishi. What have you done? You made a fool of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still love that song, by the way. I was just, I was just listening to it. I, you know what? I was listening to, um, actually, I wasn't even listening to the White Album. I was listening to the Analogs doing the White Album live. <laughs> okay, I've never, I've never heard them. Oh, really? Oh, go on YouTube. Look up the Analogs. They're called, and they'll, they'll take a Beatles album and, they, and they, they actually recreate it with as many players as it takes. Like they bring on the string players. They bring, on, yeah. They bring on like um, the, the little recorder parts. Um, in uh, Glass Onion. Or Fool on the you know, Hill or whatever. Yeah. Ba, 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 listen to me. There's, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's two bum, people bum, walk bum, out bum. On, on the stage with two recorders and they play a recorder part and they walk <laughs> off the stage because there's only one recorder part in that song in Glass Onion. But oh, they do right, everything. right, right. It's, right, it's right. They, that's where they go. Uh, he does a reflection back to the, uh, the Fool on the Hill. Ba, 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 you know, yeah. right with the recorder. Yeah. That's so funny. That uh, There's, a, there's a, a franchise called... Um, classic albums live and they used yes. to come here and play and, and they do the same thing that i went and saw them do let it be and uh, abbey road and i think they jam after that because the albums are only 40 minutes you know so right. they, they usually jam afterward 
but that was they were they're pretty good too they're they're very good and then if you've ever heard the fab foe will lee and yes uh, yes yeah and those guys and, and, and not, have you seen classical mystery tour no um it was here i didn't see it, it it's like the it's the whole uh orchestra right like the orchestra yeah they, they, they I, I i don't think they traveled the orchestra they probably use i'm, I'm assuming they probably, they use, probably a local use local orchestra. people with just yeah. with just pivotal stuff like maybe the first violin they'd keep or whatever but um yeah now that's it's interesting what i found most interesting and i think this guy's gone gone off on his own i can't remember his name which is driving me crazy right now but he is the best mccartney i've ever seen and heard in my life wow he looks the way he walks, the way he his legs sit under. He's a in piano. the classical history tour, right? Is that he was in that, but I yeah, think because I used to see him. I I remember they did play an event in Delray Beach, and I was there. Yeah, I don't know if I stayed for the whole show because I had been there all day, but I talked to him before the show. You're right; he's he looks just like Paul. He acts just like Paul. I know he's unbelievable. I've yeah. never seen anybody that close, and I was like four. Four rows down, right from the stage. It was like there. There is a guy that looks like Ringo that we used to go to Beetlefest, and he would go around with you know all that, taking pictures with people and and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, I've never done. You know, and I've never, I've never gone to Liverpool, and I've that's one of the things I've got to do in my life. I mean, I just I was supposed to go a few years back with my friend Michael Sicoli that I mentioned earlier, uh, and he ended up going on his own, and. Uh, and I, because I, I had to go on tour with Randy or something, something came up where yeah, I just couldn't yeah, go. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, this, my, my wife is now thinking that we might want to go to England. I've been to England a number of times. She had no, she had no real desire to go until yeah. uh, her daughter went to England. Now she wants to go. And I said, well, we can go to England, but one, at least two days in Liverpool for me. So, well, they, you know, I've done that trip a lot. And they, and you, if you, if you can do time in London, you might be able to get a musician's tour of Abbey Road Studios. That might blow your mind, you know, if you're in Well, I, I actually had that lined up. I actually had, at one point, I was actually close to lining up doing some um, recording there with my band, just to, just wow. to say we just did it. Just to say you did it, yeah. yeah. The, um, and then there's a train that goes from London to Liverpool. There's only, it only makes like one stop. You get there in three hours. It's real comfortable. You have food on and everything. So you could easily do that. It takes you right to the Adelphi Hotel, which is the heartbeat of Liverpool. So I've taken it many times. And usually um, I'm on a trip that then, and I just bring my luggage and I go to Liverpool and then I fly home from Manchester or, or something. Oh. But I haven't been there since they really, really, really embrace their Beatledom. So there's statues everywhere. I don't know if you saw James Corden when he did um, Carpool Karaoke with McCartney. Right. And they were driving all through Liverpool and Paul's old home. And you see all the people following them and taking pictures and everything. And McCartney, it was interesting to see him go into his family home and him say, I haven't been here since I moved out when I was a kid. Yeah. And you would think that before they opened it to the National Trust that he would want to see and stuff like that. So he was there and he was actually playing on that. You probably saw it. He was playing on the piano. It's not the actual piano that his father owned, but he was talking about this is where we wrote She Loves You. And we practiced it. We practiced it in the bathroom because we had echo and everything in there and that kind of stuff. Yeah. He, yeah. He tells the story of his dad saying, why are you saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you say yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Love There's it. too much Americanism in the songs. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so that was gr a great carpool karaoke. I really enjoyed seeing those places. But the point is that Liverpool has got so much Beatles stuff. And, and the, the time I was there, 
they have a one of the magical mystery tour buses. Like maybe there were four of them or seven of them, and they've kept this one and they use it for tours. So it's kind of nice because you're in the, one of the buses that has magical mystery tour on the side. But the whole thing is only like two and a half hours. It's good. You see like the highlights. But I took one. There's like a white panel van, and there were like seats for like six or eight, and it was the whole day. It was eight thirty to like five thirty, and you really got to be a hardcore. But it's so good. You go to the um, Liverpool Oratoria, you go up to the um, that big church that they that you always see. Um, they take you everywhere. They take you to all the homes. I think it was bef- when I went, it was before you could go in the homes. So you can actually, I think you can go in John Lennon's house and Paul McCartney's house. I've been inside Ringo's and it's just like a really, it's like a two story and it's really narrow. And you could, I mean, probably this bedroom is probably the whole size of the, lo- the room, but there was a lady that owned it and you, people were knocking on the door and she would let you come in and look around, you know, Ringo lived here for a couple of years, I guess. Wow. Wow. So yeah, I would definitely recommend Liverpool and uh, they've really beatalized it. You know, there's, so, there's the hard days night hotel, which um, my friend Shannon, the artist did all of the paintings for, uh, there's a John Lennon room. There's a McCartney room. And she, she paints these gigantic, you know, airbrush. Her paintings look like photographs. They're, they're yeah. that stunning. Shannon is her name. You can look her up on um, social media. Yeah. So I would, yeah, I would stay at the, I mean, I like to be comfortable. So I stay at the hard days night hotel or something. Yeah. Is it, see, is it nice? Yeah. It's, it's, it's practically brand new. It's only been open for like a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When Michael went to Liverpool, he ended up going with a guy that refers to himself as a walrus because he's got the big mustache and all that stuff. Okay. His claim to fame is his, his, his brother was, uh, he, his brother was what the heck is his name the one that he he was in a hard day's night with the beatles his brother he was okay. the, the main actor uh like this 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 the manager guy the stage guy you got the guy well there's there's the um the tr- traditional actor victor spinetti that played the director but then there's the guy that was like their minder mm-hmm. come on boys you got to get to rehearsal you know there's that yeah guy. and i think that that might have been his brother Okay. Yeah. And, and so anyway, but he, so he does a whole tour like this and it was one of those more of a more personal thing. So he was with them all, yeah, the, yeah. you know, taking them around. And- we had, um, we had this woman who was doing this tour for years and she was an expert and in our group was Louise Harrison and, you know, to have her there was pretty good, but mm. you know, when, <laughs> When she, the woman's trying to give the tour and Louise kept, kept interrupting. That's not true. My brother never went, you know, like that. And, and I think she was kind of annoyed. Oh, she, yeah. At one point she said, would you like to give the tour? You know, and, and, <laughs> and then I think Louise stopped doing that. Well, it's, it's so hard because you got a rhythm, as you know, you get a yeah. rhythm going and it's like somebody interrupts your rhythm and now you got to rethink everything you're saying. And it, it throws you off, you know, when I used to do stand up, that would throw me off. Cause I'd have my bits memorized. And I knew there was a word in that bit that reminded me of the next bit, like the word car reminded me getting gas or whatever the next bit was. And if somebody was getting a birthday cake in the club or somebody was, they were doing their checks or somebody hollered out something, it would throw you off and you'd have to stop and go, uh, Hey, is it your birthday? I guess we'll all sing happy birthday to, you know, Mitch or whatever. And then you forget where you are in your act. You know, if you're not, a, I wasn't a seasoned standup. I just did like, I did like the middle act bit for like, a couple of years but um 
Yeah. So yeah, you're right. So what you were saying is if you have your narration and you know what you do next and somebody interrupts you with the story. Throws well, you, you talk about stand-up, even when I'm, you know, when I'm sitting down and I'm like, I, I just a little while ago, I did a Simon and Garfunkel show uh, at, at this. It's a, it's a theater that's built into a recording studio in uh, White Rock, BC. It's fantastic. It's called Blue Frog. Amazing place. Cause it's the big room in the studio. Okay. It's almost like when McCartney played at, uh, at Abbey road, I suppose when he did his little concert there, right. people, yeah. they bring in a hundred chairs folding chairs and you do a concert there anyway i I was playing there and i I was talking about a song and there was a guy right in the very front row who's a friend of mine and he said something and it threw me off totally i I forgot exactly totally what i was saying (laughs) i was lost but like it seems like an eternity i I probably skipped a beat for about three seconds to me it felt like forever you know but yeah it's amazing how fast you can get thrown off your game though and I, i i i've always said i think comedians are that's got to be one of the hardest jobs in the world. I have so much respect for comedians. Yeah. Well, there's this George Carlin thing coming to HBO in about two weeks. I can't wait to watch it because I was a huge fan of him. Oh. Even they, they play clips of him now on social media where he's like talking about whatever the issues are, abortion, whatever. And he's like right on target from like 30 years ago. I know. I know. He was, he was so incredible. He was, he was not, he was, he was not a comedian. He was a prophet. He was a, yeah, he was a speaker of, of things yeah. and the way he put words together. And the last time I saw him, it was an HBO thing. He had like an extra stool and you could see he had his papers there and he would, you know, he was still working out his act or he, you know, he didn't have it fully memorized, like which piece goes where and stuff. But God, he was so, so incredible. I saw him once down here in South Florida. And I think I was in the very last row behind me was like a wall. But it was worth it. And I remember um, you couldn't hear him at the beginning. And they're going, louder, louder. And he goes, I don't know why the louder family comes every time we do a show and they yell out their name. (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing him one time on Johnny Carson. And it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. He went on. They announced him and he walked out and he did not say a word for three minutes. Not one word. He sat there and he just looked around. And people were killing themselves laughing because wow. they, they, they it was an uneasy laugh, but then they were laughing and he just look at his watch. And I, knowing him, somebody probably said something like, you can't do that bit. He says, well, I'm either yeah. doing that bit or I'm not doing it at all. And so if, right. they, if he, if they said that he probably just walked in, okay, I'm not doing yeah, it at all. That's probably what happened. Yeah. He's- it was that defined. He would just stand out there for three minutes and not say a word, wow. but it still worked because it was him. Who was the guy that uh, Andy, um, who was the guy from Taxi that did all that? Oh, weird? yeah, yeah. And he would actually take everybody on a bus to like a, a restaurant or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, when, uh, God, well, terrible. I, I remember seeing him on um, Evening at the Improv one time when he, uh, when he actually started, he had, his cancer was starting to happen. And he was doing his bit on, and he had people, people from the audience walking up and touching his tumor on his neck. Wow. And then he invited them all out onto the street and they went out to a, to a diner, everybody from the improv and the cameras followed them. It was Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Andy Kaufman. Sure. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. on what, what, a, what a strange, like, like there's a guy that's just living his art, you know? Yeah. He just is. His, his life is his art. It's like a, a, a much more intense way of, like John Lennon lived his art, but Andy Kaufman is even more so. I mean, the, the super sad thing about John Lennon is if you look at those last like 
from the time Sean was born to the, to the end, he was really um, becoming kinder and more reflective about the Beatles. He gave an interview with um, uh, Playboy magazine that became a book and um, where they, they sat down and they just spread out albums and they talked about like every song and Westwood one owns that tape. And I used to work for Westwood one, my show. I could never get them to give me that. They, they said, no, Yoko will not allow us to make a copy of it. It was wow. the Playboy interview with David Sheff in uh, yeah. September of 1980. And um, I mean, literally every song of all of a sudden, oh, that's Paul could write a, a good song if he's a good boy, you know, stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. He had some great comments or he would go, you know, yesterday, wonderful song. Never wished I wrote it. Wonderful, yeah. you know, beautiful song. He was really honest, you know. Yeah. Really, yeah, no, I I remember I had those two Playboy. It's the only time I think I was allowed to buy a Playboy magazine was <laughs> for those articles, because you know, it was part one and part two, and then I ended up buying the book a year later. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's funny too because sometimes I'll hear an interview, and and then I'll read it in the book, and I go, they changed the, they kind of retyped the question. I mean, I guess you have to do that, and sometimes because it's like I remember the question, the spirit of the question is correct, but the wording of it is different. Maybe the interviewer didn't want to seem like he was asking the question you know, grammatically incorrect or something. I don't know. I guess yeah, it doesn't really matter. It yeah. does. That's like the, you and me, like the picking out the minutia of the songs, you know, and all the, I remember sometimes I'll ask, I would go to a festival and oh, you do Beetle Brunch. Yeah. Yeah. What do you like about the show? Thinking they're going to go. I like when you crossfade this into that and you talk about the birds and then you bring in uh, the, the Hills of Remney or whatever. And then you play the George Harrison song. And they go, oh, I love the music. You know, they don't really get very specific, the average fan. I mean, but that, and, and I interviewed uh, Randy Bachman when this album came out. And, and I forget where studio, he was in LA. And they were cool enough to send me like the mic feed at the end of the interview. So I had me on mic here and him on mic there. And I remember, because I was a huge Guess Who and um, Rock and Bachman Turner Overdrive. I might even still have the A-track, Bachman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's my dog, Jenny. Jet, right? Jet. Jen, Jenny. Oh, Jenny. Okay. Jenny, yeah. um, anyway, I remember asking him, you know, specific, really deep, specific questions about some of the Bachman Turner Overdrive songs, like um, the, the, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet with the stuttering. And I said, I'd read that was uh, something for your brother that he had a stutter and you wrote that song. And he told me the whole story. It was um, that he did it as a joke for his brother and he sent him this cassette tape and that kind of thing. You probably know the story better than me. Right. But we did this interview for like 45 minutes. And he had this like incredible recall of every detail and so perfect. And I said that to him at the end, I said, Randy, how do you have your memory is, in, is insane. It's so perfect. And I don't know if this is true because you spend private time with him. He goes, Joe, I've never had a drug. I've never smoked a joint. I've never taken any, I've never had a drink. I don't mm -hmm. drink coffee. I, you know, and that's and, true. And that's that's, then that's why he's his memory is spot on. Well, he to, he told me that the last time he had a drink was at the very 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 beginning of the Guess Who. He was at a party one time, and I remember he somehow it was snowy out in Winnipeg, and he had to move a car, and he had been drinking. Oh yeah. And he had to move a car, and somehow because the car was stuck, he had his foot outside the car, and he was pushing like this. Oh yeah, trying to push it back. Yeah. Somehow ran over his own foot. <laughs> He didn't hurt himself, but because it, it it was still there was still wet and snowy. His, fa his father came out, and his father was definitely the grand patriarch of the family. Everybody like held his, you know, he held his dad the highest level, and his dad walked out and said, "I'm so ashamed of you." Wow. And that was it. 
He went, never had another drink. And then, of course, uh, later on, he uh, he met a, a Mormon girl. And of course, you know, uh, there was no drinking or coffee or anything like that allowed in that religion. So that just became part of his lifestyle. But he was already living that way anyway. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, we, when we do these cruises, you know, we do the Q&A thing. And uh, when we had Gary, Gary Peterson from the Guess Who, you know, and the interesting thing about the new Guess Who, and I know that uh, it's probably not uh, Randy's favorite thing, um, is they, they, they admit that they're not the originals. And so when they're on stage, they go, we love to play these great songs as much as you'd love to hear them. We didn't write them, you know, we're, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So they come clean. But Gary was telling some stories about Burton Cummings, you know, and with running back and forth in the car and not missing they're on stage and he's not there. And, you know, the, I think that's what people like hearing those crazy, nutty behind the scenes things, you know. Yeah, no kidding. I, I had the opportunity to work with Gary, actually. That's why actually when I met Randy, the first time I met Randy was 98. And it was because I was asked to play on an album. And Gary Peterson was the drummer as well. So it was kind of a cool thing for me. And Donnie yeah. McDougal, who was in the Guess Who after Randy left. So there was three uh, Guess Who alumni along with me. So it was, it was a fun album to work that on for cool. sure. But that's when, that's when Randy asked me to join his band. I couldn't at the time because uh, it would have meant putting my own band out of work. And so I didn't I think I'd ever right. get the call again. But eventually, a couple of years later, I was, you know, he, he kept me in mind and I, I joined the band. I've been there ever since. So it's been, gosh, 22 years, I think, something like that. You know that this is a, one of those stories that's kind of off the record. But um, when Ringo um, has it, had his all-star band, he would also record on albums. And he would have Ringo and the Roundheads. So that was Mark Hudson and um, the guys that are on the recordings all the time. And Mark Hudson had been bugging Ringo. Uh, I want to be in the all-star band. You know, Hudson Brothers had, you know, two hits and that kind of thing and bugged him for years. And finally, um, he agreed that Mark could be in the all-star band and uh, they printed up the posters and stuff, Mark Hudson and who else was there. And, and I don't remember. And then Mark uh, never did one show. He got the um, offer to be on this TV show um, kind of like a, a, like an American idol for bands or something like that. And oh. it, it lasted one episode. So oh he, no. He quit the all-star band for that. And then like, I don't think him and Ringo have talked in like 15 years. Oh, I know. It's so sad. Yeah. So sometimes the choices you make are so hazardous. Oh, God. Bad. You know, he said at the time, he said, you know, I can make more money in one episode of this TV show than I make on the whole tour with Ringo. Because I think right. with Ringo, he's, I'm sure he pays fair, but I think he's about, they fly in a Learjet, they stay at the Ritz, you know, they have a nice, nice um, setup for themselves. I think that he kind of sells it that way. Yeah. Well, you, 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 I, you've seen the the uh, the TV shows on Sidemen, uh, the the movies like. Uh, oh, I'd like, love to see that. Well, there's it's on Netflix, and okay. I wanted. I mean, Rudy Sarzo is on it a lot, and just you know, and you and you see all these people that have been hired as Sidemen, uh, who you think are actually rock star status, but a lot of them are kind of just making normal lives. You know, it's a yeah. it's not rock star money. You right. Know? Right. So, you know, the, the, the stars of the show are the ones that make the money. There's no two ways about it, you know. The um, Inagata Davida, who's the band? Um, yeah, the, Iron uh, Butterfly. Iron Butterfly. The, the, I think it's the keyboardist for Iron Butterfly. He was on one of those Q&As with me, and he tells that story that, you know, he um, was moonlighting as a limo driver, and he was also the organist at the church, and he was playing at a funeral, and he was doing all these things to make money. And I see him on Facebook sometimes, you know, like 
I had a, uh, don't have any health insurance and I hurt my foot and whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So I feel, I feel for those guys, you know, I have, um, I have a line that I've used a few times and I, I'm very happy to be a never was than a has been because I, I'm still always, and, and it's not, and it's not because it's just, I, I'm still always striving for the, the thing that I've never, I've never really grabbed the brass ring. It's never happened. I mean, I, I, I mean, I play with Randy and I get notoriety, all that sort of stuff, but that's not the same thing as right. having that recording contract and my name in the lights and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I get enough of that with my own shows and I'm happy with that. I'm, yeah. But I've got a good life. I've got a really good life. And I was able to yeah. have a good life playing music. And I and think I'm, I'm, a, lucky, I'm yeah. a lucky man. Quality of life is, is so much more important than what you do. And when I got into radio in 1978 or nine, the, there was an opening at our station for mornings. The morning person left. And I remember going to my boss because I was like a third wheel on the morning show. I did traffic and I made little jokes and stuff like that. But I was certainly green. And I remember going to my boss and general manager and saying like, um, hey, can I uh, audition for the morning show principal job, you know, the, the host? And he said, and we're in Miami, which is market 11. And he says to me, no, you know, the, you need to go to a small market and work your way back up. And I go, well, I'm already in Miami. I'm not leaving. You know, I'm already working, even though I was making like 15,000 a year or something. But, you know, I just hung in there, you know, just uh, been in here pretty much my whole life. I just didn't want to be moving all the time, you know. So how, okay, so I, I guess I, I got to get back to how you started the whole Beetle Brunch idea and, and, and how it grew. How did you make it grow? What, all that stuff. Because well, yeah. I'm sure there's a huge story going on there that we haven't even touched yet. I guess, yeah, I mean, basically, um, I just, I was going, my family was shooting one of those um, pictures at Sears or whatever, you know, everybody gets together and they shoot those pictures. And because they lived, most of them lived south of me, um, it was like 45 minute drive. So I had to be there. So I grabbed a bunch of Beetle CDs that I have back here and took them with me. It's the first car I ever had in 92 that had a CD player. I never had a CD player in a car, never heard of it, or, you know, it wasn't, it never worked. So this had like six speakers and sounded great. And I'm listening to these bootlegs and other things. And they sounded so wonderful. And I had this um, 45 minute drive. And um, I remember coming into work the next day and my boss, uh, who was also a big Beatle fan, my program director boss, I said, I can't believe nobody's doing a Beatles show in this radio market. You know, it's a big market. And, you know, I, I said, I'd like to do one. He goes, well, put something together. So he kind of threw it back at me. So that weekend I went into their studio and I kind of um, put together, a, it was going to be the anniversary of Sergeant Pepper, the 25th. So I put together a show based on that and I played it for him and he liked it. And then he says, uh, we're going to start it. We're going to start it on the 20, on the 31st, which is the um, 25th anniversary of Pepper. So we started it at the one station in Miami and real to real. And, um, our company ha happened to own four other stations that were oldies too. So after a couple of weeks, he was the program director of all of them. He said to them, you're going to be carrying the show Beetle Brunch. So all of a sudden it was on five stations, but I had to make reel to reel tapes, mail them out, usually go to the post office and they weigh like two pounds. And, and I did it that way for a while. And then when CDs came along and dats, they were, um, I think I was up to like 12 or 15 markets. I, one at a time, I would make calls to program directors there was no internet. So I had to FedEx them like a, a cassette or a CD of the show or, or a demo that I put together. I couldn't email them. There was, there wasn't even any email. And I used to realize that the, the only time you could get these guys on the phone, because they never take your call. There was always somebody to block. 
a program director, is if you call it like 20 after 8 in the morning when there's no switchboard, then they answer the phone. That's the only time you can. So I realized the only way I could ever get these program directors is to call them super early when their guard was down. And then, so we would do that and I would send them. And one by one, I built up a couple stations. And then uh, I remember I had 39 stations. And uh, but for, like, for you to get from, from where you are in Miami up to where I was listening to it in Vancouver and Vancouver Island. Right, right. That, the, that's pretty remarkable. And I don't know how we got Vancouver. Um, because I had a guy that was helping me and with the, with getting the stations. But when um, we started to get more stations, I bought, a, they don't, I don't even think they make them anymore. I can just do it. It was a four CD stacker that you could put the CD in and make three copies. And then once, once you've done it, then you can make four copies and they would only take a fourth of the time. So it would take about 15 minutes or less to burn four shows. And I had, at the time I had 39, so it'd take whatever, like two hours or three hours. And I paid a guy like 50 bucks to burn all these shows for me and make all the labels and make all the cue sheets. I would type it on a regular typewriter in the studio, go into the office, make, you know, 12, 15, 39 copies or whatever, cut them up in little pieces, put them in the CD and mail them out. And uh, that's how it started. And then um, I met with a syndicator at United Stations and he there, they were going to take the show from me, but he said to me, well, you know, Dick Clark is a partner in, in our company. So you might not be hosting the show. So I didn't want to hear that. You know, I'm going to be producing mm -hmm. it for Dick Clark. I thought, you know, I don't really want to do that. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I knew a guy that listened to the show in Nashville he was the vice president of programming for Westwood One. And so he knew of the show. And uh, I reached out to him and he said, yeah, I know the show very well. So he said, well, they said they would do a deal with me and take, take the show on. So what it turned out to be is I only had to send one CD to the syndicator um, like Saturday afternoon for two weeks away. And then they would take it, they would burn all the CDs and they would send them out to all the stations. And then because they're, that's what they do, marketing, they, before long, they had me up to like 120 stations, which was great. And it was easier for me because I only had to do one show. It had to be a specific length and everything, you know, and I didn't have Pro Tools. It was still analog. And how long from there to 120 stations? How so, long from inception? So I got my syndication deal in 2000 and I started in 92. So for eight years, it was me just slugging it out on Friday night going so into I was listening to you on the radio. You were sending those tapes to Seahawks. Yeah, exactly. I was, and it was Canada. So it was a different price structure. You know, it wasn't bad. I mean, today it would be like $30 or something like that, but it was, it was like $2 or whatever. And um, yeah, so I was sending them um, probably CDs by the time 2000 came along. And then Westwood one had me from 2000 to like 2018 or 19, which is pretty good. And they paid really well. And um then they decided they weren't going to do any more music shows. They just wanted sports programming and they do like NBA playoffs and things like that. So they cut my show and they put me with this other syndicator, which I'm still with, but the, it's the, the pay is way less, but that's okay. Cause I, I do it here at home and, you know, I do it on, uh, I can upload the show obviously on an FTP. I finished it up. Like I finished, uh, the show that's going to air on the 15th and, um, if you are familiar with the new Let It Be box, there's a, the Glenn Johns mix, you know? Of yes, that? yes. Yeah. yeah. So I decided to do, because it's the anniversary 
of the premiere of the film in New York on the particular week that I'm doing the show. I think it was going to be like the 17th of May, but my show's on the 15th. So I decided I'm going to do Let It Be Glenn. That's what I mm. call it. So I'm just playing those 14 songs from that CD. I can't play them all because I have to be I have to be done at 48 minutes. So um, I picked out, you know, like nine of them or whatever. And I have little stories. I went on YouTube and I found interviews with him that I, I can either listen to or lift little sections of him talking about working with the Beatles kind of thing. So um, I'm not sure what your question was, but that's oh, that's no, that's how it works. That's how it works now for me. And so how I so for you to get paid, let's say back in the day, you're mailing off these these uh these tapes to let's say sea isle in yeah. richmond bc which right that's right richmond, british columbia yeah and and but they paid a licensing fee to you for that well what they do no see it's a different situation well first of all i had two sponsors that i got myself i had a friend of mine that got uh beetle they used to be called beetle fest the vest for beetles fans they were paying oh my gosh they were paying like hardly nothing to be heard in a hundred markets or whatever they were paying like um i don't know 200 maybe 200 a week or 150 a week and then i had this other company called the music machine they sold rarities and things that you and i would like and they were paying like 500 a month or whatever their their deal was so that paid for my materials that did i didn't make any money that got me by you know and that kind of thing and i did production and other stuff and i had a full-time radio job so um yeah, when I got the deal with Westwood One, then I was able to, um, I couldn't run the spots for the clients that I had, but I had them put it into the contract that I could mention them at the open and close. Brought to you by this Fest for Beatles fans, you know, this week featuring, you know, Nick Delavy. Um, so um, I was, so that's how I did. I was able to get some extra money with sponsorships, but just to keep them on really, because they had been loyal to me, you know. Wow. You know, yeah. It's amazing because so, so are you, well, you would, you would still make money from them broadcasting, would you not? Oh, no, that's what I started to say. No, the way it works is I deliver, they happen to have this product and how, if they choose to play it, they're responsible for the licensing. So all radio stations pay, um, uh, it's not SAG and Extra, after it's um, BMI and ASCAP, right. you know, the royalties. And then and so, and so can up here, yeah. Okay, so they pay all that. So they pay it for all the music they play. So right. they, I do give them a cue sheet and at, at the end of whatever time period that they're monitored that they have to put down what they played and who the writer of it was that when they, they have to do probably four Beetle Brunch programs in between. Most of the time, the writer is Lennon McCartney, but it could be, um, you know, Tw Isley Brothers, whatever, Twist and Shout. So um, yeah, they're responsible for that. And I think there's, there's a DMCA law too about streaming uh, certain things, uh, certain songs that are written by or owned by record labels. I'm not really super clear on it, but you know, there are stations that run the show on their radio and then they just block that hour that they can't play the show on the internet because they have to abide by the um, DMCA laws. What I'm really trying to nail down is not necessarily that those, those, those licensing things. I, how it's how you're getting paid by, are you getting paid by these radio stations? No, the stations, uh, what happens is the, the show goes to them. Uh, I give them a 48 minute show. They put um, the, the, Compass Media, the distributor, they put in six minutes of their commercials. So it's a bunch of 30 second spots. So it's 12 30 second spots. And it's like Progressive Insurance, um, Door, um, DoorDash, you know, they have um, insurance companies, um, hardware stores, national chains kind of a thing, internet companies. 
And so they are the ones that get paid for inserting the advertising in the show. They send it, upload it. I upload it to the station. The commercials are put in. It goes out to the stations. They play it. They have six minutes left over that they can put, Sea Isle can put their own spots in right. for or, or promos or play more music if they don't have spots or whatever. So that's how that works. So I don't get paid at all from the stations. I get paid from the syndicator. Okay. So, yeah, okay. And it's like a percentage uh, depending. So I just added a couple of new markets in Monterey and uh, one of them is going to get into San Francisco. So that would be good if I have more listener ship, it'll pay more. You know? So how many, are you in more markets now than you were or less markets now since everything? Well, it's funny. They sent me a list last week and it's got 200 markets on it. But if I dissect them, Carefully, I can see, well, one of them is uh, using a TV signal. One of them is on the online. One of them is a, a translator, you know, um, and they put, they'll put uh, the city is New York, but it's really like a city and it's out in the country. So it's not New York city, you know, the number mm. two market in the country or maybe number one. So um, the last I saw was literally like a week ago, um, 200 markets. And then I just added three this week. So like a little, a little over 200 and but also looking on there i can tell a few that have dropped off i know there's some so the the list would have to really be worked over but it's probably in honest probably 175 or something like that i mean there's there's a few that that i i should pull off of there but it's 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 pretty good because i don't have to do any of that i used to have to do all the affiliate relations ad sales production distributing yeah. distributing it's so an exhausting amount of work the first eight years were like slugging it out you know for real and i didn't make any money like i said i, I had two sponsors so maybe it was 200 bucks a week for both and that paid for buying tat tapes buying you know if i wanted to go to beetle fest i'd buy a plane ticket or something like that so yeah it was there was no money in it but i sold montages too i do production so i would do these themed montages that weren't necessarily Beatles. They were like about waking up in the morning. So you'd use, it's a beautiful morning, wake up little Susie, you know, you'd all these little wake up things, string them together and do a promo. So that was the imaging that I did for the station. So I was doing all these real creative promos, um, songs about rain, songs about heat, songs about sunshine, not even the song, just a line from the song. And um, it, it, I, 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 I'm trying to picture what that would be. I, I'll send you one. It would be like, um, what would it be like? Do I have peripherals on? Hang on a second. There's um, not a way to play it on this show, but yeah, there is. I can play it well. It'll play through the speaker. Well, and if it doesn't sound that good, if you send it to me, we'll over we'll embed it into the uh, show. Yeah, you can do that. So let me open up. It's great. So you get the idea. So um, I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's anything you can create, and that's how that's the um, production I started doing. That was I kind of branded myself as that because we are our radio station. <clears throat> we had a huge competitor. We were trying to get off of oldies. You know, we changed format and hired all these people and bought advertising and and we had a competitor that had been in the market a long time called Waxy One Hundred Six, and we wanted to blow their doors off. So. Instead of playing, like if I listen to production on the radio now, I'm very, I'm a really tough critic because it's not very creative. It's phasers and zappers and EQ. You're listening to Q99, you know? 
So I said, well, I'm not going to do that. That's not entertaining. That's a tune out. I said, what if our format continued into the break and it, it didn't, it was entertaining. What if the messages were just as fun to listen to as the songs right. instead of, you know, playing a screaming commercial or something. So I started doing these and I would do them with, um, our station was called magic. So the, maybe the first one I did was magic. It would go, Oh, 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 it's magic. You know, yeah. and there would be like 10 magic songs in a row. Sometimes I would theme something and the announcer doesn't come on till the end. So the listener's trying to figure out what you're doing. So uh, I did hundreds of those. That's a great and, idea. Yeah. And what I started doing is um, I had a friend that uh, I said to my partner, business partner, why don't we sell these? Cause every oldie station would love to have these montages. I'll give them a script. I'll give them on a dat all these montages with a listing of what they are. And they have to go, oh, it's always a beautiful day when you tune into CIL 650 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's up to the station. So we started selling these montages for like 600 bucks for like a dat. Well, so I, I kind of was making money that way. Then a guy um, reached out to me from ABC Radio. They, had a, they were starting a service called Goldmine. And Goldmine was all this stuff flashing back. So if this was the week of May 15th, I would have a let it be piece on there. There might be some kind of listener talking, anything an oldie station could use to image themselves. And it would be people talking or, Oh, I love the oldies here that without saying the station, they would just be generic. Oh, I love when you guys play the oldies. I love waking up in the morning with you, you know, whatever, you know, we would, they would put those into little promos. So I was collecting and I was doing that anyway for my station. So I was able to use the stuff I was already doing and mix it out, take my voice off it or the station voice and send it to this, abc radio today that's and, excellent and and i did like I, hundreds of those i mean i've got them some of them i don't even have because i did them in their pro tools and or and i don't even know if i didn't save them i, I saved a lot of them and then i did uh, a bunch of tribute songs like for 9 11 i did a tribute piece that got played nationwide um we had a hurricane down here hurricane andrew which is coming yeah. up on its 30th anniversary i was um we were since we we're miami we were all over this hurricane and it was, we owned it. I mean, we were, we didn't play music for like a week and, you know, we were covering who's bringing ice and how to get water and this guy needs roofing tiles and all that stuff. We were like a news station. So I took um, all these clips from the news and the weather and the guy at the national hurricane center and the reporter and people on the street. And I put them all down and I started laying them over songs and like, you know, whatever song about weather and rain and stuff. And I used Riders on the Storm and it, I didn't have to change songs. It was perfect. And I did it on an analog eight track and it's like, yeah. and he goes, uh, the forecast for South Florida, Hurricane Andrew looks like it's going to be a direct hit to Miami. And then you hear um, it's coming, you know, and you hear Riders on the Storm. We just sat here, my brother and I, we hunkered down Riders on the Storm. We were looking for water. Within this town we're born, you know, right? Wow. And then I just, and I rearranged the verses so that they, they paid off what they were, they were saying. They didn't have to be in the way Jim Morrison sang them. He goes, there's one line where he goes, gotta love your man, you know, yeah. that song. And I dropped in and I went back to the instrumental because it's like a three minute instrumental break in that song. And you go, he goes, gotta love your man. The guy goes, yesterday there was a guy that was bringing water to people and he was dropping off uh, stuff and picking up deliveries and he was an angel, you know, that kind of thing. So I did this whole thing about Hurricane Andrew. Wow, that's brilliant. And I did one after 9-11 too. And that got played nationwide. Well, I sent it to ABC Radio, but also it got picked up, you know, so it was um, the same kind of thing. It was, um, I didn't want to put really painful stuff in there. 
mm-hmm. it was like, you know, uh, at eight, uh, we at about eight forty six in the morning, we saw uh, this happen, you know, but it wasn't really, I didn't put explosions. I'm not, I didn't want to hurt it. You know, I didn't, it's too, too tender, you know? Yeah. I just put, and I put different songs. I could send you that too. That, that in the end, it was like um, Neil Diamond's America and stuff like that, you know, it was like, and then he, part of that's playing and you hear George Bush saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to win this and we're going to take everything back and blah, 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 you know, so it was very powerful. So I've, I've made a lot of those after Katrina, I did one using lean on me and all of, I didn't have the song, didn't have enough of an instrumental, but I found a karaoke version that was in the same key. And I crossfaded them back and forth. I'm not even sure if I had digital at that time. I probably had Pro Tools because it's way much faster in Pro Tools than trying to do it on an analog. So yeah, I did that. I did a lot of I did a lot of those pieces just because I was inspired. Um, I couldn't do them that day. It's like I had to drive around and think about it, and you know, and hear a song and that was healing well, that's great well i i thank you so much for your time man it's been great getting to know you better i mean i talked to you longer here than i did on the boat <laughs> yeah i hope that uh, i hope that you guys are on next year and i hope that uh we have some oh. time to hang out well yeah. it's in my calendar so uh, you know cross fingers well i'll send you an email if you want to send me um which I'll, I'll fill out the form for the beetle brunch club and then i'll send it to you on how to get into it love to and then, and then you can do, in fact, all the shows are there. So you can go back and listen to the last like four years of Beetle Brunches. Yeah. And then I have what I call old brown shows based on the song Old Brown Shoe. Right. And those are the really old ones from like 1992, three and four and five and six, where I, I sound totally different because I was still trying to be this like BBC announcer and without the accent. Instead of now, I'm a lot more casual. I go, oh, hey, by the way, did you know Paul's coming out with it? You know, I'm more like I'm talking to you. Right, make the show that way, and and the one that I did it, uh, two weeks ago, what was the topic? Um, I can't remember, but I did. That's why I brought up Roger McGuinn because um, I did something. Oh, it was songs for women. So since the Beatles used to call women birds, I used Enya Burke and sing. But I also yeah. had an interview with Roger McGuinn of the Birds, saying how he was influenced by the Beatles and he got that 12 string guitar after hard day's night and whatever. And he, and he thought that George copied um, George even called him and said, I, I have this song. If I needed someone, which uh, I took from the bells of Rimney, which is a bird song. Right. I play a little bit of the bells of Rimney and then I play the George Harrison song. So people can see, you can hear, definitely hear it. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, eh? That's, that's kind of where I veer off in the show. I try to do, instead of just making it like a history lesson, you know, I try to do things that come to mind that I can move off of because I do 52 shows a year. So, and incredible I'm, amount of work. And I do a Sergeant Pepper show every year, but it's always a, it's different. I, and with Pro Tools, I can open up the Pro Tools and I've got like 10 shows going back in Pro Tools. I do them in the same window because if I want to borrow a sound bit and move it across, it's easier than. Well, I'm going to share. I'm going to share that click track with you too, so you can hear it, and I'll and I'll share the saxophone thing too. I would love that. I would love yeah. that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So awesome. What, what are you? What's happening with this? This is obviously you can't put two hours and twenty minutes on. Oh no, I will. Oh, you will. Okay. Absolutely. What we'll, What we'll do is we'll we'll have the show in its entirety, and then we'll have it broken down into certain subjects that we wow. talked about, and then we'll also the picture segment will be something else entirely. Oh wow, so, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
Thank you for this. This has been the, the lo- certainly the longest interview I could have uh, that I've ever done, and I'm very honored. <laughs> well, there's so much to talk about. We could keep talking, but it, you know, I can only do two hours, and it's already been two hours and ten minutes. So, well, you know what? Next time I'm going to interview you, and we're going to talk oh, about be uh, fun. Yeah, who you that. played with, and stories, and songs you've sure. written, and you'll you'll like I sent you pictures. You'll send me either pictures or. Um, uh, audio of things that you uh, want absolutely to I'll, yeah we'll trade back and forth we're beetle brothers <laughs> and if there's uh you know um i may uh what i'm doing a 30th anniversary show so i've got like lawrence juber did a liner for me um hal bruce who you met on the cruise a few other people have done liners for me i'll send you that info if you would record a like a happy 30th anniversary and identify yourself and say something about you and then if there's sure. a song a Beatles song that you would want me to play either for the anniversary of the show or, or your specific memory. Hey, Joe, thanks a lot. My first memory is at Sullivan show or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I would love, I would be honored to have that on there. So that yeah, would be absolutely. like, whatever, so what whatever, I'm going to do, that show is just going to be all people saying, you know, requesting and, and doing stuff about the 30th anniversary of Beetle Brunch. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be great. You remember I'd be, it, I'd be honored to do that because I was a big fan of your show way before I met you. Well, so. that and and you and we mentioned 650 Sea Isle, so that was in the very early days. That was in the like 1994-ish period, probably. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it was way back. Yeah. Because I have these. I did one of the ways I got those stations is I did this uh, CD of um, Beatles montages, like you heard. So I did them for all these different albums, and, and I made a CD, and we actually sold it to radio stations. And we, the guy that was helping me sell it salesperson for that was talking him into taking the show hey take mm-hmm. beetle brunch and you know so i don't know if they if they threw the cd in for free with that well red know. red is a big beatles fan too so he might have had something to do with it because he was he wasn't the head honcho of the show but he was definitely the person that they all looked up to because of his you know his pedigree you know and what happens a lot of times is i'll call a station oh we already have our beatles legendary guy here you know so i'm surprised mm-hmm. it didn't happen with the program director of that station saying that we have red robinson how are you going to beat him I was, i'm not going to beat him it's just a companion thing well yeah but i think i think there's a certain mystique too of having a a, a show that that's coming from a different part of the world too i i thought i thought it was great listening to your show i didn't know where you were coming from at the time, I had right. no idea. Yeah, I mean, I rarely mentioned uh, South Florida or, yeah. or whatever, you know. I just knew that it was, it, I just knew it wasn't being done in Vancouver. Right. And it's produced, so like everything's tight now, or, you know, or tighter, you know, than it was when I was doing it analog. And sometimes the levels will be off and, you know, but it's certainly with Pro Tools, it's it can be perfect or the technically perfect, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, Joe, thank you so much. Great, great talking to you, man. Mick, thank you, man. I'm honored that you had me on, and uh, I'm going to email you some stuff about the club and also the liner and uh, absolutely and, and reform we'll, around it. You're not locked into what I write. Just you know, and we'll, 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 we'll include the club things and stuff uh, for people to join your club on the uh, when we broke. Oh, that's great. Yeah, just that blue banner is is the is, is basically about the club. So that'd be great. Thank well, you. Well, hopefully we can get links that we can put right in there. So oh, I can send you the link for that. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. great. great. Thank Thanks. you, my friend. Cheers, so buddy. Honored. Thank you. You too. Bye now.